Let's go, everybody, for another new episode. I'm Michael and John's on the other side, tolerating this bullshit. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? <laughs> it is the beginning of year three, which is 1982. Uh, we're kicking it off with video games of 1982. And, uh, wow, this is the last great year before the crash. Oh, boy. Yeah, this we'll we'll talk about that once uh, once we get to the end of the show. The the prelude to yeah next year. Ugh. All right, so uh, you're recording in a hot box right now. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, the situation is not exactly the most ideal at the moment, but you make do with what you got, right? So he's in solitary confinement, and uh, this is his punishment now. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of, yeah. yeah. I'm in a closet at the moment, uh, so uh, that my nieces don't uh, go and uh, run roughshod above my head and ruin this wonderful recording. Hey, just tell them you're looking for Narnia. <laughs> no, that'd be going through a uh, wardrobe. No, oh, I'm... that's right, 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 right. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I knew the damn name of it. All right, so let's talk video games of 1982. All right, so 1982 and video games are kind of at their peak. Arcades are raking in the equivalent of 11.4 billion dollars in today's money. Oh, in today's money. And in today's money, and the and that's not that far off. I mean, I I want to say it's like four or five billion at the time, something like that. Like the whole market was bringing in the effective amount of 10 billion. <laughs> so. Next year, yeah, this is the last year that they're making all this money for a while. <laughs> Which is ironic for me. I didn't discover arcades until the crash. Like 1983 is when we moved. I think it was 83 or 84 when we moved to a new school, and uh, there was an arcade across the street. Genius says, right across from the school, tempting the children at all times. Yeah, and like last, like 1981. This year had some amazing titles that came out. Some stuff that I, if we had arcades, you know, real genuine arcades, I'd still be going over and playing those as opposed to anything of the newer, shinier stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was a place we used to go to called Indiana Beach, and they had a whole section of arcade games. This is the 90s. And as you would progress back, you would get older and older games. The whole back row was like pre-arcade games, or pre-video uh, uh, games. You know the kind where it's like the little target and you shoot it and stuff like that, and a little baseball from the 60s and 70s. Then you have the pinball section, and then there's that prime area of early 80s. Oh, delicious. The classics, yeah. And that's just it. A lot of these games that we're going to be talking about, and I had to pare down this list. Otherwise, we could spend like a good two hours Definitely. talking about this stuff. And. Even then, I, I removed some stuff. I will just throw out a uh, some love to Choplifter. Came out for the PC this year, or 82. And I remember playing that game on the Master System, and it was amazing, and good times. I want to throw in a moment that you're going to hate, because we discussed this for our other section of the show, albums of 1982. It's Buckner and Garcia with Pac-Man Fever. <laughs> Technically, that actually came out in 1981, but the whole album, do the Donkey Kong, do the Donkey Kong. Um, 
not as good as not as good as Pac-Man Fever, so I get why they're a one-hit wonder. Um, but I have listened to that album maybe 35 times this year. This month. <laughs> this year alone. This, this week. <laughs> I did listen to it this week, though. <laughs> oh. I like it. It's not great, but hey, what are you going to do? They had to make up those, that album in like three months. They had like 90 days to turn it an album. Well, that, that does kind of seem to be a through line for a lot of these things is not a lot of development time for much. Granted, most of these things, it, it worked out. <clears throat> or at least had it a, a substantial for the time amount. One of these games we're going to talk about didn't have that, but let's, <laughs> let's talk about the good stuff first. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Because uh, this year, uh, in 82, we got Zaxxon which uh, developed and released by Sega. It's this isometric sh- uh, space shooter, which was very good at creating, uh, being creative in creating this uh, 3D space because it gave you a little al- altimeter. So as you're flying, you, got, you can go up and down the x-axis along with you know, you know, your x and y. So you have this illusion of 3D because as you, as you see this little thing saying, oh, I'm going up and down, if you look under your ship, the shadow underneath you gets larger and smaller the higher and lower that you go yeah it's uh this is the hold on is this the the development of sega as like a major company is this their first big hit no they had did some other hits prior to this but this was this one was pretty pretty damn huge and shows up in a lot of the collections that they release nowadays but the uh 3d games um i'm gonna or the 3d imitation i guess those games throw me off so badly. I suck at Qbert, even though I love Qbert. I love Zaxxon. I suck at Zaxxon because my depth perception <laughs> apparently sucks. It's this is one I never played this in the arcades, but I did play it in uh, on computer, and I was this was one that I was pretty good at, but I always kind of felt that it, it always kind of felt like you needed you kind of needed to under to uh, play it a lot of times to get where the depth of some of these areas were because to exit out some of these areas you have to fly during a fly through a specific sized uh, and elevated hole and if you don't do that you crash and die yeah well it's the same thing with Qbert is you think you're going down but then you well it, the home system's different than the car arcade the home system sucked because I said sucked too many times uh, everybody take a shot every time I say sucked and we'll be done in 15 minutes um <laughs> But the controllers on the Atari made you think that you were going to go down, but you went to the side and you jumped right off. I've never seen such a suicidal creature in my life. <laughs> yeah, and because I've played that only with Qbert. I played that more recently than, than Zaxxon. But this is one, this was the first video game, arcade game, I should say, that was advertised on TV. Really? Yeah, and this also, I mean, this is going to be a running theme for, for a lot of these games in this year. This thing had, you know, it was because it was well received. It ended up having a board game based off of it. Wow! It ended up it ended up in the uh, video for uh, New Order's Blue Monday, huh? Which makes me really want to see that video again. Uh, it's in Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter. It's a main plot device in the trauma film Hollywood Zap. I have never heard of this movie. In- Hollywood Zap. I gotta I gotta find this movie now. Yeah, and it also it showed up in episodes of Remington Steel and Home Improvement. Wow, Home Improvement—that's kind of late. Most, most importantly, 
it was part of the Smithsonian's Art of Video Games exhibit back in 2012. That makes sense. That's one of the first, like, really, truly amazing designs. Like, it's not just, like, yeah. a, like a platformer or what do you want to call it. It's it, the, the depth that they had to take, the, the style that they had to put into it, uh, is truly art. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful game. I wish I had a list of all the games that were part of that Smithsonian uh, exhibit because I, I'm sure... Obviously, the next one we're going to talk about was probably part of it, too. But, you know, it's like I forget what they actually put in there. And I I remember uh, they gave you the opportunity to vote on stuff. So I actually voted for things to potentially have been in that exhibit. Well, that's cool. But the next game is Miss Pac-Man. Okay. That was in this, the exhibit? I mean, it's just Pac-Man, well, but with I've, faster speed and a... Uh, well, Miss Pac-Man is basic, and I will fight anyone on this. Miss Pac-Man is the ultimate version of Pac-Man. Well, yes, I'm not going to argue that, but it just seems weird that they. I well, I don't know. If, like I said, I'm not sure if original Pac-Man or if it was Miss Pac-Man that made it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Miss. Yeah, even is, with, it, is, even is Miss Pac-Man, Pac-Man the first one with the cutscenes? Is that the first cutscene ever in a video game? Not the first cutscene, but it is. Uh, it does have the more like far more substantial cutscenes than you know, like some of these previous games did. Okay, okay. But but basically, this wasn't made by Namco. It was uh, actually developed by this uh, uh, group called uh, General Computer Corporation that basically, they went and created a mod based off of Pac-Man called Crazy Auto. And they what ended up happening is, they had actually created another mod based on Atari's uh, Missile Command, uh-huh. And that ended up in a lawsuit. Oh. So so they ended up, uh, you know, trying to get away from this and not getting sued anymore. They went to uh, Midway and said, hey, we were making this modded version of your game. Uh, what do you think of it? Uh, are we cool? And they like, because uh, Namco was taking forever to actually make the sequel to, uh, to Pac-Man. They went, hey, let's turn this into Pac-Man. I mean, hey, if it's right in front of you, you save yourself all this development time. Yeah, so, and a lot of things that they ended up doing was, like, they adjusted the gameplay so that the ghosts now had simply random movements, so you couldn't just follow a pattern in there. It, of course, like you said, ran faster. Uh, The little bonus fruits that you eat actually move around the maps. And as you play the game... The actual uh, power pellets that you get become less effective. Oh, I had no idea about that. I never even noticed that. I oh, had this yeah. back, man. I never noticed that. Wow. Well, it probably depends on how long you play it, too. I mean, if you're really good, you you probably notice it. If you're like me and kind of die after a couple of uh, mazes, you probably don't notice it. Yeah. And this is this is right at the peak of the explosion because we're about to get the cartoon uh, the singles, Red Hot, we're going to get all the spin-offs, you know, like Super Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, Pinball Pac-Man, which I think is Baby Pac-Man. There's Junior Pac-Man. Um, we have the serials, we have the board games. We had the board game as a kid. Um, it would just become everything for a couple of years. Yeah, and that's just it. Like, yeah, you have the Pac-Man cartoon, because you had the CBS Superstar Cade. Which I believe you did an episode back in the day about that. Didn't yeah, you? it's uh, back our other podcast called Back in Tunes. We did Saturday Super Kate and the Pac-Man cartoon. There's a whole bunch of the. There was a boom. It was Pole Position, 
uh, Dragon Slayer Space Ace, and then of course Saturday Super Cave had Frogger, um, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Qbert, and Pitfall. Yeah, oh, well, spa- yeah, Space Ace was part of that, I know that. And Pole Position apparently was part of it as well. No, actually, no, Pole Position was different. It was a separate series oh. that came a few well, years oh, later a- on CBS. Okay, okay. But what now, this Pac Man wasn't the only Pac Man game that came out. <clears throat> There were two more Pac-Man games. In the same year? Uh, yeah, Pac-Man in the same year. There were three Pac-Man games that came out in 82. Okay, that's excessive. That's, uh, a, that's overwhelming. Yeah. Pac- now, Pac-Man Plus is basically the same game as Pac-Man, but it has like some cosmetic changes, like the color of the map is different. <clears throat> the fruits are now different power-ups, like including cans of Coke. Like, the only actual real changes... Uh, the ghosts ended up being more aggressive, and the power-ups can now be a little more unpredictable. Uh-huh. Like uh, making the like making the ghosts or even the entire maze invisible. But Super Pac-Man was totally different. Where instead of pellets, you had keys to open doors, and those had the, the foods in them that you needed to complete the levels. Right, and that's the one where and he then, would get certain things that he would enlarge in, right? Yeah, because then you would have these super pellets that would then make you larger and faster, and you could just bust through those doors without having keys. Uh-huh. And it's like, I remember playing Pac-Man Plus, but I don't know if I've actually ever played Super Pac-Man. Yeah, I, I definitely remember cabinets. that. Well, I had I had on my Xbox, I had the multi-pack with every single arcade game except for the Pac-Man pinball, of course. Well, I guess they could try to fake that in a, uh, a yeah, you could, digital There's world. a way to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I had all of those it's in like, Pac-Man Plus, and they had a, years later they had a um, like a Dr. Mario, but with Pac-Man. I can't remember what that's called. Yeah, wouldn't yeah wouldn't surprise me. Pac they they milked Pac-Man as much as humanly possible. <laughs> and I think I think but, the only way you can really do Pac-Man is in its original form because Pac-Land, where they decided to do a platformer, it doesn't it doesn't work at all. Well, he's such a weirdly shaped character that it just doesn't. I mean, yeah, okay, you have Kirby, which is also just a round circle character, but you can do interesting stuff with, with Kirby where he sucks up, you know, sucks up villains and gets their powers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what the hell does Pac-Man really do other than eat shit? Yeah. But also this year had Dig Dug, which, that's a game where I never have actually played. Oh, really? I've seen you, it everywhere. If you ever pick up I've, a plug-and-play that includes Pac-Man, it almost always has uh, Dig Dug. Oh, yeah. it's it, I've had Namco collections and stuff like that before. I've just never played it. It's just like, eh. But it's this maze game where basically you have to go around, you, you dig, through the, dig through this underground area, and you have to destroy your enemies by either pumping them up with a bike pump <laughs> or you crush them under rocks. I mean, it, yeah, I said, there's there's certain reasons, even as a kid, I would always see it. I, there's, But I just kind of looked at that and went, that's kind of dumb. Really? Because <laughs> I always thought it was game. a lot of fun. It reminds me, see, I played uh, Dig Dug after Super Mario Bros. 2. And there's a segment in Super Mario Bros. 2 where you're digging through sand to get away from the bad guys. And it kind of reminds me of that. And I, I just, I had fun with it. With uh, Dig Dug. Well, yeah. Well, it, and it's been... There's all kinds of games that it's it had gone and uh, been an influence on. Because I've definitely played games where, where the object is digging. And I'm not talking about, like, Shovel Knight or something. But, yeah, there's... 
all kinds of stuff that I've seen. And hell, it's got sequels, uh, not just Dig Dug, but it's part of a series also called Mr. Driller. Oh, okay. And... What is Mr. Do? Is that connected? I always get those games confused. No, that's that's a, that's a separate series. Okay. And that also did come out in 82 as well, but I, for the for the interest of time, I did kind of ignore Mr. Do. <laughs> More sorry like Mr. to all Mr. Don't. Do fans. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to all the fans, but yeah. Uh, one I did did decide to include just because I have fond memories of is Time Pilot. I don't know this one. Now it's this little multi-directional uh, shooter where you pilot this little jet plane in uh, different time areas, <laughs> and uh, as you're sitting there trying to rescue all these uh, trap pilots, uh-huh. it's there's nothing really remarkable about it, but I always remember the 1942 thing. I think it might be a little earlier than that, but you have, you're fighting. Yeah, we had the early M42, but you're uh, going against these uh, biplanes, and they just constantly dive bomb you. And I just, I always remember that, and just made me nostalgic, just full nostalgia fuel. So I had to at least include it. Was this console or computer? This was uh, arcade. R- okay, how have I not known about this? I'm trying to look it up, and my browser won't open. You dick. Yeah, it. Like I said, I remember having a lot, of, having a blast with it. But it's it's one of those games that always gets lumped in with like 1941 and all those other kind of uh, plain plain fighting games. Wait, is this a? Oh no, so it's, it's not. Like, I thought it was a Vectrex game. Okay, I'm looking at the graphics now. I yeah, I don't recognize this one, but apparently they made a Vectrex version of this, which I'm curious about. I wanted to play the Vectrex so bad that I have someone building a, a Raspberry Pi, and that's one of the things they're grabbing. But then I actually looked at how you play it, and you have to have like these layovers. The Vectrex system is strange. Did that come out in 1982? Would that be appropriate to bring it up? Uh, Vectrex, uh, that came out earlier. Really? Yeah, that came out earlier. Uh, okay. I was hoping to like casually slide into a very obscure game console with like 12 games. <laughs> oh my god, $700 for 11 games and the system. Holy shit, I guess it wasn't very common. <laughs> well, it's like that's like the Neo Geo things. I <gasps> always remember seeing that being sold, Yeah, but uh, I never knew a single person who had it, and it was always like $1,000. Guess what? I lucked out. It did get released November of 1982. The home console did. The oh. arcade version came out earlier. Oh. So, I accidentally brought up something for 1982. <laughs> it says it was a victim well, well. of the video game crash of 1983. I have my doubts, no matter what year it was, it was going to fail because it's too weird and it had too, so few games. Oh my god, the remote control is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. And they're still <laughs> building... Oh my god, they're still homebrews for the Vectrex. People are still building them. How? The... How do you do this? I'm going to have to look this up. I'm going to have to look this wow. up. Wow. The controller, all now, the buttons are lined up in a row, and it has, <laughs> like, a very, very tiny, itty-bitty little joystick. I can't tell if you're supposed to use it like a D-pad where you put your thumb on top of it, or you're supposed to control it with your fingers. Yeah, that's that's a weird system. Well, that's what, because uh, this year, uh, in 82, they also had the ColecoVision, which came out. And, I mean, that had basically kind of like, like the Intellivision before it, yeah. one of those nine-button... Nine you know, uh, deep uh, not deep pads, but uh, little foam pads, and then the little little uh, circular mouse thing—not mouse thing, but uh, controller above it. Where from pictures, you can't tell if it's just oh, you just twist it, you know, twist the dial back and forth, or if it actually had full 
full movement like an analog stick. Okay, I'm looking at the controller right now. I remember this. So who did you call with this? Because I feel like this is supposed to be a cell phone they just never got around to. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh man, yeah. The I I really wish that I had, had a ColecoVision because it looked like they had some really good stuff for it, and apparently it was, at the time, the closest thing you had to an ar- actual arcade at home. Yeah, I think another thing that killed it is not just because of bad games, because there's too many consoles now. I mean, there's always been a rotation of three, and then usually a fourth one that always fails. I feel like there's six systems going on right now. Why am I getting a now on ColecoVision? Is this the one that they're... Tommy? At the time. No, 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 hold on. I think there's a, there's a new system coming from them. Uh, Tommy Tellerico, or, you know, that does all the music for video games. I am pretty sure... Someone is building a new console. It. Okay, there's new miniature versions of them uh rainbow bright and robotech home okay this is bizarre i I should have told you about this before i went on the air it is clecovision flashback it's available with six games built in so if you like that system i guess every christmas you can pick it up at kmart on clearance because no one fucking wanted it (laughs) (laughs) well that's well that's the thing with all these like there's an intelligent television one there is a neo geo one that is a little literally a little tiny video game cat. I don't get the, con- I, the what sense does that make? I don't want to use that. Yeah. I wanted one cuz I thought I originally thought it was going to be something that you plugged in and then I saw it and went I want one of these except I do not want to play in a tiny ass little no, uh, Well, did you see that Sega parts? Sega is announcing the uh the pocket, the miniature uh, uh Sega Game Gear. It's the size of your palm. I don't want to play games on something the size of my palm. No, I, I. If it was the size of like an old uh, Game Boy, sure. Nope, it's I'd be like a third the size. Amico, that's what it's in television, not Coleco. In television, it's coming out with a new system called the Amico, and it's supposed to be all family-friendly games. It costs two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh my god, it's so expensive. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> no. What does television possibly have? I heard it's a lot of home brews and okay, those controllers look just like. Uh, uh, um, cell phones again. Does anybody know how to make a game system that's not named PlayStation, Nintendo, and, and, and Xbox? I feel like Sega should come back with like a really good system. Oh no, they. This 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 pains me to say it, but I really don't want Sega doing any more video game systems. They can Why? only barely. They can only barely. Uh, give us a decent Sega uh, decent Sonic game these days okay. I don't know it just feels on... like the Dreamcast was one of those things that got away with them and I feel like they could buy, uh, build a console with all of their games everything from their catalog that they own into one console and instead of just emulating Genesis games you know get the Master System get the Genesis get the uh, the Game Gear um, god damn they had a lot of systems so I think about it Saturn Dreamcast what are the two that failed horribly the the add-ons the CD and well the Saturn the Sat well the 32X crashed crashed and burned the the Sega CD did okay but it was the 32X which was the additional add-on to that and then you also had the Saturn which tanked and was you know they're that I think that should be a story to hold off on until we actually. Yeah, get sorry, I, I get distracted. I start looking at some Nico, yeah. and then I start going off in different tangents. I'm going to stop looking at stuff. Just keep talking. I'll shut things down. But yes, but yes, I don't want Sega to do another console only because, as an old Sega Sega person, they at the time they couldn't market themselves out of paper sack. 
with one of the best consoles of that generation. And then, yeah, they haven't given us a... They've had to have outside help to give us a good Sonic game, so... But, also, something that kind of blows, uh, Joust! Oh, you mean the worst version of Balloon Fight, even though Balloon Fight rips off Joust? (laughs) Yes, very much so. Uh, we've, we've, we've kind of talked about this one before. You're this knight on an ostrich, and you're jousting other knights that are on buzzers. The controls suck. Yes. And trying, oh my God, they trying to defeat the enemies. Like, like you mentioned Balloon Fight, where it's very obvious where you're supposed to go and knock these knock these uh, creatures down. Uh-huh. In, in this one, yeah, you have to kind of be a, above, the, above your opponent and knock them off their thing. But you almost always run into them and bounce off your opponent. Which is ironic, and since it's called it's a- Joust. You're supposed to Joust them, not land on them. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass. It's not fun. It is one of the first arcade games I actually remember playing. So Yeah, I knew a kid <laughs> named Sean I'm... who had one in his uh, his garage. And I never got to play it, but I was like, you can own your own arcade system? How is that even possible? That was the first time I knew that you could just buy older games from an arcade when they need to move stuff out. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those games where eventually maybe I would want to go back and try it again just to say, okay, I gave you another fair shake. Yeah. But I also go, no, I think I've played it enough. Uh. <laughs> One thing I haven't played enough is Burger Time. I've never played Burger Time. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, oh. I honestly don't believe I've ever played it. Yeah, it's it's a it, weird little game where you're basically kind of going up and down the, uh, basically climbing up and down planks and ladders. Essentially, your planks are the ingredients of a burger. And the idea is that you have to go and walk the length of each little ingredient so that it'll drop down to the next thing. And so if you get all the all the parts taken down into a uh, completed burger, that area is done and you can move on to your, and you move on to the next ones. And it's just all you do is just trying to create these burgers while not being killed by these enemy food products. I'm being it killed is, by it sounds like yeah, there's like a, a flaming pepper, and I can't remember the other enemies. Well, but, you know what's interesting about yeah. this game? This seems like the very early idea that would eventually become things like Tetris and Dr. Mario and Bejeweled and stuff like that. Well, less it's less... Well, it's a puzzle game, but it's a little more platformy. It's kind of like... It'd be kind of like Donkey Kong Jr., Right in in a in a sense more so than yeah okay. like doing but I feel like things. the seeds but it are is. planted there for a puzzle game. Oh yeah, there's pretty much everything is a puzzle game uh, if it's a platformer in this era, with the exception of a few one couple ones we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, uh, next one was Robotron 2089. I've only ever played the home version of this, and I gotta tell you, Atari fucked that one up big time. Well, and that's that's kind of interesting. Well, actually, no, I can understand why because it's a twin stick shooter, and with the with the uh, Atari, you only have one stick. Yeah, and and also it's just not as smooth. I, the speed, well, the speed of the uh, no, I did play the arcade version. I forgot the speed was much better in, in the flow, and it wasn't Vectrex, but it had that kind of how do you explain like how the it, way it, things move? It, Feel- yeah, it, it kind of looked. It's like Berserk. Like we we talked about Berserk right, yeah. before, it's like that, but it's a horde mode version of Berserk. 
Right. There's a little less sprites. The, the sprites were heavier in this one, I feel like, than any other game. Yeah. I mean, the same the same guy who made this ultimately made a a more refined version of it called Smash TV. Oh, I remember Smash TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah for the Nintendo. Well, for the arcade. Yeah. Too, same. Yeah. yeah, same same guy did that, and you can you can see with Smash TV where where Robo you know how they got that from Robotrex or Robotrex Robotron. Robotrex was the now bigger you... brother of Robotron. He was a jerk. <laughs> same. Saying Ve- uh, Vectrex, now I'm getting that stuck in my head. <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> Let's see, Cubert. Uh, we discussed that. Came out this year. It's so it's so gorgeous yeah. to look at, and it's fun if you have good depth perception. I don't. I I, I, I just terrible at it. Well, this was another game that I never really played in arcades because I couldn't figure out what the hell you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, you watch you watch the little little whatever the fuck Cubert is bounce around and i'm like you know my my brain didn't understand oh you're chain you're making sure that you change the squares things bouncing on to the to the target color it just that never clicked with me yeah and but I always, you always is but, the first game with cussing in it <laughs> pretty much because uh, cubert has this little gibberish thing that he does and it's basically when you see it written out it looks like a comic book swear yeah. So yeah, he's he's infamous for being the first comic book character who swore. Did you ever see the cartoon? And of this? if you, by the way, I'm just curious. I did. It's a fifties. It's a fifties teen movie, but it's so such a weird choice. Because yeah, it has nothing. I mean, not I'm not going to pretend that uh, Hubert has a great story or anything, but that ain't Hubert's story as far <laughs> as I can tell. But yes, if you've uh, seen. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph, you have seen Cubert. If you've seen Pixels, you've seen a horrible film, and I feel bad for you, oh. and it kind of has Cubert in it. Kind of, but Cubert gets chick. turned into a hot girl, so basically Cubert has sex with Josh Gad, I think, if I remember correctly, and they had little Cubert babies. Yeah. <laughs> yep, you remember that correctly. I do too, to my shame. <laughs> Terrible. All right, Tron came out this year as well. Yay! Everybody hates this movie for some reason. I don't know why. I love it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with Tron. I like I sequel war, and everybody the... hates that one too. <laughs> well, that's just it. I did not like the sequel when I first saw it. I thought it was boring as hell, and then I saw it again a couple of years later, and I was fine with it. Uh, I, so, was, I was in a whole time. new world, and I saw it on my birthday, and I was so overjoyed. And that's what I feel like with the movie, is that it just presents you this whole universe like Star Wars does. It's, it's pure escapism, and it was forward-thinking, uh, and a lot of people just didn't know what this stuff was. Yes, it seems so basic now. When people bitch about the graphics, I'm like, it was 1982, dick bag. It was so progress- yeah, you know, forward-thinking at the time. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the film looks fine. I don't have... I definitely would not say anything negative about its aesthetic. I do kind of find the the film to be a bit boring. I think it's but, stiffer than the, the sequel. The sequel is much faster yeah. paced. The first one, though, it is a little stagey. Yeah, it's it's very slow paced, and but that's also kind of Disney at that time. Yeah, that's I true. watched Black Hole that recently. Was the, that was a decade of Disney just being lost. They had no idea what they're doing. Yeah, it's like I watched Black Hole fairly recently and. Oh god, the pacing on that was so horrible. And so it's like I don't so it's just I I can I can understand that. 
The game, however, I'm sticking my middle finger up at it right now. So hard, uh, isn't it? It's so fun. All, 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 what are the three of games, right? The bike, the the disc. Uh, yeah, four. It's got yeah four games because there's the the thing where you're fighting against the master computer. You've got the light cycles. You got a tank game and something else. I, it wasn't the disc. No, I'm sure there was a disc one. I feel like that's the one, only one that I've ever played. That I mean, all no, the all the no, uh, there's. There's a there was a sequel that was dis, the disc battle. Okay, I think that was in eighty three, I think. But yeah, there was there was another game. But boy, uh, they, they made like, those well, those games in the arcade were so iconic because they made up those unique controls that glowed and they just caught your attention. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's the the Tron game will always catch your eye. It has a flight stick as a controller. It is, I will say this. For starters, it is an intimidating-looking game because, again, it's four mini-games, and they show you like all four on the screen, so you don't know what the hell you're looking at, really. Because it's, oh look, okay, there's a snake clone. Oh look, you're shooting something. Oh, there's a tank. I recognize that. Oh, what the hell's that? You know, it. The good game design is you should be able to recognize what you're doing when you start off. No one likes being tricked. And Tron kind of tricks you into thinking it's going to be one game. And again, it's four. Yeah. But without it, I really don't think that... um, I feel like that's the first time people saw a lot of CGI. I know it's not all CGI. Some of it's just straight-up animation. But they're like, oh, hold on a second. You can actually use this in the medium. And slowly over the years, you get more and more of it. And I feel like Tron's the only one that really works because it's in the video game world. Like, when they use it in Last Starfighter, it doesn't make any sense because everything else is tangible. Why do you have this looking weird-looking ship, you know, uh, in, in, the, in this world? And I just feel like they didn't get it right again until, what, like, Abyss is when they first used CGI to really create something that was... Oh, okay, it's yeah. liquid metal. That makes sense. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the little water creatures in Abyss, and then you got uh, the yeah liquid metal from two, uh, T2, which both of those films still hold up, even as rudimentary as they are. Those those CG effects are very good. Hell, the the CG effects in in uh, Jurassic Park still I just flabbergasted still that they, they hold up as well. I'm actually shocked. Yeah. Sadly, this is 82, and but not sadly, pole position. <laughs> is this the first uh, this real game, racer game? This is the first quote-unquote realistic racing game because it basically not only it had tracks based off of actual F1 racing circuits, it had this uh, little pseudo 3D thing where the sprites kind of scaled. Uh-huh. So like as you're uh, as you're coming close to your opposing racers, you'd see them off in the distance and they get larger. It had a rear view, uh, rear view mirror, so you had a rear view of your of where you went, so you could see the racers as you're passing them by fade into the distance. There was a vanishing point on the horizon. I mean, this game hold, still holds up now. Wow. It is. I I still love this game. This I think. I don't want to say it's the pinnacle of racing, but is the first. And again, there's other. We talked about uh, a couple of other racing games in the previous shows that I like. This one is the first one that I, if I could own a, if I actually could, 
purchase a cabinet right now, it'd be a pole position captain. I, I, I mean, I get the, the appeal of the game. I don't know if that would be on my list at all of games I'd want to own, but yeah, that's, that's pretty... I mean, it's it's so forward-thinking in, in what I was trying to do, too, because I feel like most racing games at the time were not meant to be, like, first-person... Well, it's not... It's, pole position is the first-person. What do you call that when you're just over the shoulder? Oh, it's a, th- it's a third-person game because you're seeing yourself. Okay. Seeing your, your car. But how it's done is different than, like, the way Rally X was and... Um, uh, Spy Hunter. Actually, I don't even know if those two games are out yet by 1982. I don't think they are. But it's one of the few games to do it in that style. Yeah. Well, and you also had a bunch of... There were a lot of games where your racing stuff was all, like, third person, but it was like a god you know, a god perspective. So you're looking down on the track as you drive through it and uh-huh. stuff like that. And that's fine. But, yeah, this one really kind of gave you a lot more immersion into what you were doing. And it's, it's like, mo- I've only played it once in an actual seated cabinet. It's always been like stand, you know, standing room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really wish I could have more time in a, in the seated ones because those, that was that was cool. <laughs> I get, I, that's going. I'm going. I'm, you know, it's like I'm almost forty. I'm having memories like over twenty years old of playing that damn game and loving it. So that's pretty cool. But we also got Donkey Kong Jr. this that year, which is so different because I feel like all the sequels back then were really close. They're just like updated versions of the game you already played, whereas Donkey Kong Jr. kind of redoes the whole thing. Yeah, because now the the roles are reversed, and Donkey Kong is trapped by Mario, and Mario is a total asshole because <laughs> uh, Donkey uh, Jr. is sitting there trying to rescue his dad, and he has to. You have a lot more. Uh, a lot more, far more paths you can actually do in this game, as opposed to kind of like the, the straightforward girders that were in Donkey Kong. Now you have these vines that you swing across, the platforms, and things like that. You have uh, monsters, like little snakes and things that uh, that Mario was throwing at you. Like, I think this is actually a much better game than the original Donkey Kong. You know, if I remember correctly, I think this is the first game I ever owned for the uh, the Nintendo. I think I got it with my console back in uh, 1989. That is possible. I don't. I can't think of all the things that were packed in, but I'll say this: I played this very recently with my nieces. Uh, we were having a blast playing DK. DK yeah, Junior. it wasn't packed in. It was just like well, I guess there was a packing games. I wasn't counting those. I was talking about like the first game I ever bought outside of the the console itself. Oh, okay. Which is understandable, yeah. It would be... It, it is... I don't think it's... For me, I, I wouldn't say it's as iconic as Donkey Kong. But, yeah, I, I would say I think it's a better game than Donkey Kong. I'm telling you right now, though, they probably should have made a sequel documentary called The King of Donkey Kong, A Fistful of Quarters 2. <laughs> I would definitely want to see the fallout from all the stuff that happened yes oh my god they need to do a sequel just so well i heard they've been trying to do a live action version of it but i don't think that's going to happen but i want to see like his comeuppance now that billy mitchell is basically the donald trump of video game world (laughs) let's see the last thing i'll talk about for arcades sinistar the one i the game i thought had the first uh, vocals in a in a video game wasn't. Oh, really? I thought but, it was too. Huh. No, that was like Berserk, actually, or so, or no, it was something else. Crap. 
I would have to go back to the previous episodes to find out what Damn the hell it. episode was. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this game is hard. Like, I mean, even for arcade games at the time, this game is hard. I, I do not believe it, I've ever played it. Oh, yeah, I've, I've played this only a handful of times because it makes you cry once you're done. Uh, basically, the idea, it's... You fly around, you destroy these planetoids, you collect these crystals that you use to create bombs uh, that you need to use to destroy Sinistar. And the thing is, Sinistar isn't ready when you start the game. They're, the enemies are literally building it as you go. Whoa. So you have, so you have, this, time, you have this time period to build 13 bombs, or at least get as many as you can, because it takes 13 bombs to destroy them. So you have to go around, you collect as much of these things as you can, collect the crystals, build your bombs, and then you he announces that he's ready with something like, Beware, I live. And then he starts chasing after your ass. Okay, awesome, terrifying. Like, I'm going to poop my pants now, thank you. And he's like, yeah, this, demon, this little demon-headed motherfucker comes after you and, <laughs> it's, and kicks your ass. Wow. It is amazing. Like, again, it's another game where I will probably never play this game again. It is, you know, it is difficult as hell, but, oh, man. Because especially hearing it go, run, run, run. <laughs> I already played it, I've already. <laughs> I hunger. Oh, he says I hunger? Oh, my God, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's like, there's, there's a couple of things. It's like, there's variations of these, of these things. Cause it's like, Obviously, they could get away with having just someone say hunger and then, you know, oh, it's beware, I hunger, or some, you know, something like that. You could mess around with those things, but yeah, he, Sinistar, I, I strongly urge people to watch play, you know, people playing this game, because it's, it's something else. <laughs> Now, uh, for the home market, uh, we did get the Commodore 64, though it's a computer. Uh, I, my folks did have one. I've mentioned that in the first show because I played BC on it, and that's the only thing I can remember anything about it other than it was a computer. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I, I had to truncate some things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Commodore 64, but, uh, I don't know if I've ever met any... I feel like I had a really, really long life, but I don't remember exactly if anybody actually that I knew had one. I always felt like it was something else that they had. What was the competition for uh, Commodore 64? Uh, the Apple II. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of something and else. Maybe I'm what? sure there was something else. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Apple, you had Apple and the Commodore. But Commod Apple came out before that because we had had PC games prior. Okay. Yes. Huh. Now... One of the games for Atari 2600 was the very first licensed Star Wars games. Yay! Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I hate that game. Well, oh, we talking about you the, you, said, you, you said Atari, right? Is on Atari. Yeah, the Atari, I didn't know how to play it. Because, here, I got all my um, Atari games used. So they didn't have the boxes or instructions, so I had to figure it out. It took me years to figure out how to beat the freaking AT-ATs. Uh, same thing for E.T., no instructions, no clue. Well, that's just it. The game doesn't really have a win condition, really. 
you're on Hoth, you defend Echo Base from the Adats, and basically, win or lose, you uh, they destroy the base because it's the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. So, but for some reason, I found this hilarious. I was I in doing the research on this. Apparently, some computer magazine had sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison do a review of the game. Okay. Yeah, that that was my kind of thing. Which, that I don't understand why. <laughs> but some of his some of the quotes from this, uh, it's he called it a shameless ex, ex, uh, exploitive little toy, uh, the latest icon of the imbecile industry. Okay. As well as a time-wasting enterprise. But again, most of his complaints kind of were about the ending, since you can't win. He basically just said it's an analog for the myth of Sisyphus, uh, and provided one dreadful life lesson on those of a youthful intelligence who play it. You can only waste your, you can only waste your life struggling and struggling. <laughs> yes, it, it's a shitty video game. But damn, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's... Oh, boy. I just... I feel like... Wow, Harlan Ellison. I just don't... This seems like the time when Harlan Ellison was just like, yeah, sure, pay me, I'll do it, whatever. I don't remember if this was like... Probably. Hit, kind of towards the end of his career. When did Harlan Ellison die? I'm probably really wrong about this. Oh, God. Uh, I would but, have to look it up. No, nah, it's okay. Actually, don't, might no, be no, able no, to no, 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 it's okay. Know. But I always feel like every time there's a new medium or a new genre, that there's always the hooty tooty schnooty guys that ready to shit all over it without knowing anything about it. I mean, finally now horror is being taken seriously, but it's like for 40 years, just treated like shit. And every once in a blue moon, there'd be one like, well, okay, that one was good. But in general, it is a terrible genre and a waste of your time. Well, yeah, and that's and that's always the thing. Like, I, I respect the hell out of... Uh, of Roger Ebert, his he has some of the greatest. You know, he he knows his shit when it comes to films, and for the most part, he would give things a fair shake. But there are those times where you just sit there and go, "Dude, really?" He is the guy who gave Come. four stars to Escape from L.A. and Spawn, so I have to kind of question it a bit. Yeah. Oh, it, I mean, it's, I always just kind of go back. It's like, dude, you wrote uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Shut up sometimes. Because, <laughs> well, it, and it, it was the big thing where, in regards to video games, where he just said video games are not art. And everyone would go point out things like uh, Shadow of the Colossus or some of these other games. And it's like, yes, those things are art, and they require a lot of artists in a lot of different mediums to make these things. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, old man yells at clouds. Who gives a shit what he thinks about it? <laughs> Also for the 2600 was one of the Atari's best-selling original titles, Yar's Revenge. Yar. I know this title. I've never played it. What? Okay, that's weird. Well, there's yeah, a lot it, of well, games. It's like, it's one of those games where, yeah, it's like it's a game where I know a lot about this game, yet I've never touched controller to, to the game. Because it's like you're this little insect, you eat through this uh, shield, so that you can shoot lasers at the creature on the other side. And that thing can just shoot at you, obviously, because you can. But basically, it's kind of started life as this port of a game called Star Castle, uh -huh. which was like, you know, it was this arcade game where you had 
a little uh, I feel like, like a little castle trapped under a shield, and you had to shoot through the shield to get to the castle. Right. Problem is, the 2600 was very limited in what it could do, so the port really just wasn't possible. So the, the guy in charge of programming that took the basic idea and then changed it to what it was now. And at the time, it was just kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a game. But it, over time, it just became a classic. And again, it was one of the best-selling games on the console. I remember it being um, one of those, again, where it took me a while to figure it out because I didn't have the instructions, but nowhere nearly as hard as like the other ones. Like uh, like um, E.T. and uh, what did I just say a minute ago? Damn, I didn't have the instructions for us. So, uh, I am getting tired for some reason. I don't know why. I apologize, everybody. Well, I didn't get Star my caffeine. What? It's, it was the Star Wars game. Oh, Star Wars, yeah, uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it just not having instructions for a lot of these games threw me for a loop. I can't imagine what it was like if you were to play... Like, kids today get everything told to them. Oh, this is your opening instructional. You know, you got to figure this out. Or, oh, you can't? Okay, we'll tell you what to do. You had no choice back in the day. You were screwed if you yeah, didn't all, have the brain power to figure it out like me. All games pretty much come with tutorials now, and then... But, yeah, back in the day it was figure it out. You have, you have small context clues, but that's about it. <sighs> now, uh, Pitfall! Dude, dude, wait, no. D- jungle, what's the one I always confuse with? Is it Jungle Hunt and Pitfall? I always uh, got Jungle confused. Hunt, yeah. Yeah, they seem so similar. Yeah. One was Activision, one was... Um, uh... Well, Activision's Pitfall, and I can't remember what Jungle Hunt okay, was. Okay, okay. Wa- that almost ended up on this list, but because it is basically the same thing as Pitfall, uh-huh. I just kind of went... Eh, yeah, Pitfall is is the classic. And oh, no, it is really a classic. You know what isn't a classic? Is Super Pitfall the Nintendo? Fuck you, whoever designed that thing. You screwed it up so bad. Oh, there's there's even worse ones than that. There's Pitfall 3D, Pitfall the Mayan Adventure. <sighs> F all those. Pitfall's the only good one of all these. But it's yeah, this thing where you get you had 20 minutes to run through this jungle, uh, avoiding animals and traps and stuff, and collect the treasures. It's like, I think, 32 treasures, something like that. And, you know, it's essentially the first game that was considered the uh, the essential purchase for the 2600. It's like, if you had, if you had the Atari, you should have Pitfall. And it did have a TV commercial... And guess who's the star of the uh, TV commercial? No, I know this. I know this because I accidentally ran upon it. Okay, so when I come home for lunch, I want to decompress for a half hour before I have to go back to work. And I will watch half hour clips of commercials from the 80s. And I stumbled across this one. Skiggity biggity boo, it's Jack Black. Yes, it is. 13-year-old Jack Black is the star of the Pitfall Pitfall commercial. (laughs) Great. Uh, I, I was so, I was so we, overjoyed. I, I saw it, and I had to register, and I was like, hold on a second, rewind. No, yeah, that's most definitely Jack Black. <laughs> oh, and you do know Paul Rudd was in a uh, commercial as well, right? What? What commercial? Yeah, he's, uh, he's a Super Nintendo commercial, I believe. You would have to look it up. I can't okay. remember specifically I'll try to find it on one. YouTube. I want to know it about It might this. just be a generic. Uh-huh. Yeah, it might be just, like, generic Super Nintendo commercial, but, yeah, Paul Rudd's in one. Cool. But yeah, this now Pitfall didn't invent the platformer. 
there have been other platformers that have come along, and obviously many since, but this one refined what a platform was going to be. Because, again, you're grabbing things, you're jump, you know, avoiding the obstacles. Everything that Pitfall is, uh-huh. is pretty much every platformer ever now. Yeah. Now, have you ever heard of Haunted House? No. What console is that for? Is that a g- arcade? Tw- no, that is also 2600. Like, most, most of these things are all 2600. They might have, like, a computer port or something like that as well. But pretty much Atari was the big was the big dog on the playground here. So, But Haunted House is the very first survival horror game. Cool. Now, I'm going to look this up. Wait. You're trapped inside this... Oh, you gonna look it up? No, no, yeah. no, go ahead, go ahead, tell me, tell me, tell me. This is, oh yeah, basically you're stuck inside this haunted house, and only after collecting uh, these three pieces of this urn, uh, you are able to get out. Now, you're only able to carry one thing at a time, and there are keys that open doors, there's a scepter to ward off the evil spirits, and the urn itself. So... You can only get one, so if you have to get behind a door, it's like, oh, I have to drop off my scepter and grab and grab a key so I can open this door. Uh-huh. Oh, but now there's ghosts after me. I can't, you know, I can't defend myself. This now, looks like see- this looks like the ground floor of what would become the uh, the uh, section of Legend of Zelda where you're inside. Um, oh yeah, it's. I mean, it's a fairly rudimentary design because it's. Basically, you have kind of the house, the house design where you have like a basement and like two other floors, two uh-huh. or three floors. And yeah, it's like you have a uh, like uh, was it like a little thing where you can light matches, because in order to see the items, you actually have to hit that hit that little light button and light it up. But the problem is, the second a monster comes in the room, a wind blows and snuffs the match out. So all of a sudden, everything that you're trying to see disappears, oh, no. including the monster. Yeah, that that sounds so much fun. It also sounds like a pain in the ass, because <laughs> it's a, the Atari 2600, but it sounds like it's so much fun. And of course, again, survival horror was not a genre so much until the, you know, like the mid-90s, so you kind of had a few things here or there, but mostly it was like Haunted House and then the game that kind of became the inspiration for Resident Evil and I can't remember what that was but that was a Japanese only game and then Resident Evil that's pretty cool now this is one I <laughs> I was de- debating leaving on and taking off but it for the sake of the notoriety and everything about it, I kept it. Do you know of Custer's Revenge? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, boy. Yes. This game. This piece of shit. <laughs> it's an unlicensed game for the 2600, and it gained notoriety because the the goal of the game is to cross the screen. You're this uh, guy who's completely naked, save for a cavalry hat and his raging heart on. I think you're going to start seeing where I'm going here if you have never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a Indian maiden on the other side of the screen. 
tied up to a post. And you have to cross the screen, avoiding arrows and stuff, and then you rape her. Yeah, it's it's a mind-boggling. Is this a Hustler game? I feel like this was like one made by them. It's it, not not Hustler. It it was it was a game that a company that made a couple of other adult quote unquote adult games. Uh-huh. I don't want to even though the company is like out of business. I don't even want to mention them. Like I said, this was I this was debatable to even talk about. But I mean, even for the '80s, there was enough people who just sat there and went. Um, no. Yeah, well, this is and... the beginning of the R-rated games, because I feel like there's a couple other dirty games, but then they start introducing, like, the gore, um, which is funny because the gore has always stayed around. It just slowly worked its way into the system, but porn in video games never yeah. took off. Well, even then, like, later on you had games like Leisure Suit Larry, where the entire idea is this: you try to get this, uh, get this nerd late. Yeah, and, but it's more tongue in cheek than it is outright yeah, disgusting. Like, like this was, yeah, this thing is just like, and the the thing is the makers knew it, but they tried to like pass it off where it's like, oh, you know, she's a willing partner and he's seducing her, and there's like a quote on the box saying like, if kids see it, tell them that they're just dancing. Okay, wow, you morons. But the game did, even though the game did sell like. I want to say like 80,000 units. It eventually did get pulled. Uh-huh. So good taste mostly prevailed. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm not for censorship. But yeah, that's, that's too far. There, Yeah, there's, there's a thing where it's just... There's a lot of shit that's just not cool. And there are games that I've played where they've used rape or the threat of rape as a thing. And you always kind of get a little squidgy. But usually, especially nowadays, if it's there, it's usually... There's some form of comeuppance that that happens within that. Yeah. But this, yeah, this game just. Well, we gotta end this on a lighter note. This is heavy. This oh, is making me well, feel terrible. This is okay. Uh, kind of a lighter note, but also a downer. Pac-Man for the 2600 and E.T. Ah, uh, fuck you on both of them. Uh, these. <laughs> can I tell you these this? These are the main. <laughs> I had a roommate. <laughs> I had a roommate who was dumb as a brick. Uh, nice enough guy, we thought, until we learned, we learned some, some ugh, I can't talk. Uh, he, we learned some things about him that he was not that nice. But, um, one night he stayed up all night long playing Pac-Man on my Atari 2600. This is 1998. Uh, he set the world's record, apparently, while I was asleep, and, uh, Ned took no proof of it. We had camera in the house. <laughs> oh, he he could have taken a picture of the screen. Oh. Uh, didn't record it, it didn't feed into the VHS tape that we had, uh. He stayed up all night, and he said he did it. Uh, my other roommate, Sean, said, yeah, I saw it. It's it's the world's record. And I go, well, how are you going to prove this to anybody? Uh, I don't know. Good going, Ace. Good going. <laughs> Dummy. Well, that's the thing is, these are these games are two, uh, are, are like two of the main, because uh, they're two of the contributing factors to the video game crash of 83. Yep. And you kind of wonder, how could they fuck up Pac-Man? Just not enough. It just when you well, see what's in the arcade, and when you got it home, you're like, no, that's not even close. This is like a fake version of Pac-Man. Yeah, if you if you ever see screenshots of this, it basically looks like someone took Pac-Man and squished it. For starters, uh-huh. it's like a it's like more of a rectangle version of the game than than a nice vertical 
nice vertical slice. It's this ugly boxy thing. But aside from it being this really bad port of it, Atari really doubled down on this game. Like they made 12 million units Holy of this shit. thing. Well, here's the thing. There was they predicted there was about 10 million Ataris out there. So they basically assumed that not only was every person in America going <coughs> to buy Pac-Man. Excuse me. Everyone who had, a, had an Atari was going to buy Pac-Man. But they were going to be able to sell an extra 2 million of them. So they they really went for it and I mean, let's be honest. It's it's Pac-Man. You know, it's one of the most popular things out there. I get it, but even so, it's like they they really assumed that Christmas season was going to be uh, a windfall, a windfall for them. It's it's so but bizarre then, that they, that they thought there was going to be not only everybody's going to buy one that there's going to be extra console sold because of this game, and when they when they saw the final game and they're like. No, yeah, let's keep let's, let's keep making twelve million of these. Yeah, no, I don't see the problem at all. The uh, the r r r r r r sound. Yeah, it sounds just like the arcade. Yeah, and that's kind of the same thing that happened with ET, except for the fact that not only was the developer given five and a half weeks to make this thing, uh, he also ended up using a concept that Spielberg, when when he was pitched about it, he didn't want to do. Spielberg looked at it and went. Can't you just make like a Pac-Man game? <laughs> Which, let's be fair, it's de- it's detrimental, but probably wouldn't have been as crappy. Probably would have just been mediocre and wouldn't have. I don't think would have been a contributing factor if they just did a did a Pac-Man clone with yeah. that. What shocks It'd me? probably just be like. What yeah. shocks me is that if I remember correctly, Atari was sold off what in eighty three or eighty four for twenty six million dollars or something pathetic. Like it was such, it was in such disarray. Well, that's the thing. It's like this game because they had to get this thing you know made and shot out for Christmas. They didn't give any time for like quality assurance and audience testing. Yeah, which is so, weird because uh, I video games are notoriously for movies are either they're planned so far ahead of time they come out at the same time as the movie, or oh hey you know what uh, this this Mad Max game came out like eight years after the last Mad Max movie we're good. Yeah, and that's the thing It's like yeah they really they saw that this thing that this little goofy uh, alien film was a hit so we need to have a video game tie-in as quickly as we can. <laughs> So, yeah, it it sold so badly that uh, it and many of these uh, units ended up in a landfill outside of New Mexico. And there's like a I don't think there's a full documentary, but there's something about it. Yeah, but you can watch them uncover uncover these things. And uh, yeah, that 1983 ends up being. Almost the entire death knell of the uh, of the video game uh, world. Well, I think it's funny and is again, that uh, for years that was an urban legend, and then finally we're able to prove it. Yeah, that like they hired an independent uh, independent firm to go out and just start looking for them because it was the the urban legend is yeah they put them in a uh, in a landfill and then threw a bunch of cement over them so that we would never see them ever again. I don't think there. I don't think the uh, the cement was was true, but and it's also not millions of them. 
but a uh, couple of like ten, uh, tens of thousands of games in right. general. Yeah, it's just an insane amount that was printed, so they had to get rid of some of it because there's no way they could even sell it on the secondary market or uh, you know recycle. Which is weird. Why don't they just recycle the cartridges into a different game? Well, that's the thing. So you would think you could probably get away with that, or at least... Well, no, I guess it's because didn't the 5200 debut at the end of this year and Atari was ready to move on and they realized they debuted the 5200 way too soon? I did not see that. That might have been a a starting in the 83 thing. Because I know they were... Because in 82, they had finally gotten around from the VCS name Uh of Atari to the 2600. We always, we always, anytime people think about Atari, it's usually, they say the 2600. But it was always like, it was the VCS first, and then they rebranded it as that. And that probably was in Prelude 4, yeah, the, the 56. The Atari 5200 debuted in 1982 and was discontinued two years later. Holy shit. Yikes. Yeah, we... It's well, like I said, like ColecoVision was uh, in '82, and then was discontinued in '85. So that thing crashed and burned pretty quick too. Oh, wow. It was okay. May twenty first, nineteen eighty four, is when they introduced the seventy eight hundred. That's why uh, it bombed so badly because they wanted to take the fifty two hundred off. It only sold one million units. Uh, the Atari uh, twenty six hundred sold thirty million. Yeah, and well, that's it. That's the twenty six hundred was a for the most part a very solid system and you had enough stuff out there again they were making bank yeah well what'd you say what'd you say how many did they have in people's houses by the time et debuted like well for pac-man was uh 20 was 20 million 20 so they still sold like crazy even after the crash or or sorry i'm sorry wait no i said 10 million is it 10 million you mean to tell me in 1982 they tripled their sales even though there was a crash and they introduced a new system? That tells you the 5200. Also, I'm looking at the 5200 and the controller looks like shit. Uh, what a huge mistake. And I wonder how much the Atari 7800 sold. I'm, I bet you it was a million units as well. 30. If that, yeah. Wow. I can't find it. We'll, just, we'll, also, we'll discuss that later, though. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it is such a shame. Well... Obviously, arcades lasted longer if we sat there and played stuff in the 90s. So, it's not the end of the world for it, but... Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what actually debuted in 83. Uh-huh. Around the time that everything just kind of went to hell. Yeah, so uh, that'll be our next episode, because I am very interested in what's coming next. Yeah, I can't wait. Alright, our base... Doing research on these things is fun. Uh, so that is the end of this segment. Our next segment will be... I don't know, but it's a surprise. <laughs> That's a cheesy laugh. Um, probably uh, something like, I don't know, music of night. No, no, we don't do that. We, we always do the mixtape. I don't know what I'm talking about, everybody. Let's just derail now. Uh, this is Michael signing <laughs> off. And uh, John, thank you for this segment. And uh, uh, on to the next. I'll see you guys next time. After these messages. We'll be right back.
prowling the wastelands, a prehistoric beast in the nuclear age. Now I, I don't know what it is or where it came from. Makes me sick inside as if they were so close. So very, very close. She said there was no driver in the car. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're messed up. Hey everybody, it's our segment called The Scholars of Sketch, where we pick a sketch comedy show, either a certain era, if it's a long-lasting show, like Mad TV or SNL, or we pick a chunk uh, of a show that didn't last very long, so uh, we did the first five years of SNL, we did The Muppet Show in the last segment, in this episode we're going to discuss SCTV, a much-loved, much-cherished show that I had trouble getting into. (laughs) I've tried so many times, I feel like a moron. You know, it has a bit of a cult following, and to be to, and to be honest, it had a bit of a cult following back then too. So yeah, it's it feels like a slow burn, like a character piece instead of jokes. Yeah, there there is a little different. Whereas like in SNL, like each individual sketch was like you know its own entity. These kind of sometimes their sketches are a part of this other universe in SCTV where the characters they have all these reoccurring characters, which you kind of have to familiarize, familiarize yourself with. Which is a little unusual coming from an, an improv troupe. You would think there would be more in the vein of what SNL does. I don't know, maybe that's something they were trying to set themselves apart from SNL. They didn't want to be an SNL clone, yeah. as it were. Well, I mean, their big thing was that, and kids aren't going to know what this is really anymore, is back in the day there was always that UHF station that wasn't attached to a network. It was just its own weird beast. And yes, a lot of it was reruns, but a lot of them tried to venture out and do uh, their local productions, which were always really weird and low budget, and they had terrible commercials. And it's a spoof of that, which basically died out in the early 90s when the WB and uh, uh, UPN basically bought up all the rest of the independent stations. Yeah, according to one of the creators, uh, they didn't have the budget to look like, uh, to, to, to be like SNL at the time. So they decided, to, you know, they didn't have the budget to make it look like a slick network show. 
so coming from a small market in Toronto, they decided to make it look like a small fledgling TV studio. So, so, and you know, and because TV and commercial parodies were always uh, kind of the rage when they did it on stage, like you know, when they did it like in the main stage in Toronto and Chicago, they were kind of the most successful anyway. They just decided to run with that idea, make it the whole premise. Of yeah, the whole show. shooting it on video I think really helps, and I mean that was a lot cheaper. You know, not going live, not having an audience that that curbs costs. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is always a, a laugh track. I guess they do film it in front of a live studio audience at some point, but because um, that you know that that laugh track is pervasive throughout the whole. Yeah, I guess I'm it doesn't sure. feel it doesn't feel like canned. If I hear canned laughter, yeah. I, I almost always immediately know, and it's so irritating. I mean, I'm not sure that it's not. I mean, the laughs are hitting the right beat. It doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like a Scooby Doo laugh track. You know what I mean? Right. So, well, you I'm know, not, it could I'm have not, been. I'm not 100 sure. Here's the thing: is my sister and mom went to see Mad TV. I'm not. I don't think in the last season, but really close to it. And at that point, their budget was cut so much that they were doing a lot of film segments, and they would only have introductions by the cast. So she said that they spent most of the time just watching stuff on monitors, and that's how they got the laugh track. It could have been like that. Uh, yeah, I'm not. You know, they don't have like at the end of like the '80s shows back in the day. They filmed it for the live studio audience. I, you know, they didn't have that. Of course, like my YouTube, uh, that could have been cut off on the YouTube episodes I was watching it anyway. So I don't have the. You know what I mean? So right. My access is limited. I'm not sure if it was or, if it, or it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't. You know, I didn't hear it said on during the episode. It's and the interesting thing about SCTV is that it's. And it's, it's kind of cliche of Canadians is that it's so mellow. It's so laid back, except for like the commercial parodies. Everything is just a slow burn. And, and you were saying before we recorded that some of these sketches are super, super long. And it oh doesn't seem like editing and pacing was part of the... I was watching these two episodes just randomly. Like one sketch was 16 minutes long. Oh my another God. One was 18, another one was 18 minutes long. So they did, this, they did this parody of Das Boot called Das Boob. You know what I mean? And it was 16 minutes long. And then they did like Ed Gr- Ed, like an Ed Grimley spoof, but he was Oliver, like Oliver Twist. They called it Oliver Grimley. That was almost 20 minutes long. So I've never heard of a, you know, so a one sketch being like almost the length of a sitcom. Yeah, that's insane. crazy. Those are like character pieces, not sketches. Yeah. And, and I felt Telling like that. the first two seasons were a complete mess. It was not funny or really that interesting. It was just more like, oh, we got these random little bits we're going to put together, and it doesn't really matter if the audience is there. I don't know. That's my feeling. I really don't think it takes off until season three. Well, what was cool about them um, making it as a TV studio, like because um, sometimes they'd have these sketches that weren't like fully fleshed out. Like you know, for an SNL sketch to be successful, it has to be like you know, it has to you know, it has to be the complete process. Sometimes it'll just be like a little, you know, a little snippet of something. Oh, you know, it'd be funny if somebody did this, and then that's just like a bumper between another sketch, or it'll be a promo. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you don't have to have a full sketch idea all the way thought out, so you can fill up all your content with that. You know, so you could have like a, a promo. And I've seen them do a promo of a sketch they're gonna do next week. You know, that they'll have that in the sketch prior. And then that'll be like a transition to another sketch that's also taking up time, you know, to make to make it a full hour. Well, which, you know what? Maybe sometimes. maybe that is the correct way to do it because if they're trying to be a low rent TV station, they always had that that weird filler. I remember so many times mm-hmm. as a kid, uh, the movie I was watching would end early and they didn't have anything to pad it with. So then you spent twenty minutes watching. Hey, behind the scenes on Tango and Cash coming out next week. You're like, what? Why is this? Huh? <laughs> 
Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it kind of really works. So, so those are the times where I thought, like, oh, wouldn't this be a funny sketch? But I've only had like the, the first bit of the premise of the sketch, and I don't like, I don't have the way way where you know I can't think of the way it would end or what else would go on. And I think at times, I mean, a lot of people were writing sketches like ah, then they have to bail on it because they can't figure out how. Yeah. So I think instead of, instead of having to like come up with that, they'll just make up. It wouldn't be funny if that was a show, and then that'll just be a promo for a fictional show. You know, they'll never ever. It'll never air. It'll just be a bumper between, you know, I mean, between segments. Yeah, UHF is clearly inspired by this show. Yeah, um. and speaking <clears throat> of that, you know what's funny? They did a they did a sketch, um, uh, a reoccurring sketch on um, STV called Halfwit, and I don't know if I don't know if this is the direct ripoff that went when Saturday Night Live did uh, Celebrity Jeopardy. But it is so it is so reminiscent of happening. Oh, totally. Not, not well, you know, I think that's the one of their truly solid sketches. That one actually makes me laugh very hard. Yeah. And it reminds me in uh, I think it's the eighty four eighty five season of SNL. It's uh, there's a sketch that usually gets played in the greatest hits. It's when Billy Crystal is Sammy Davis Jr. and he's got like these nincompoops around him playing password, and it's very uh-huh. reminiscent of Halfwits. I mean, it's a, you're clearly swooping Jeopardy because the, the, the host is named Alex Trebell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and these guys, and then none of them can score points. They all have zero points. <laughs> they're all, one one answer is more ridiculous than the next. And it was like, oh my god, this is definitely this is like so celebrity Jeopardy 100. percent You know. Yeah, and uh, I was looking at this, and it looks like the show went on. I don't know if it was canceled or just put on hold for a year. Uh, and then when it came back, they had to reconfigure the cast, and that's when they started doing the uh, the longer episodes. They haven't done ninety minutes yet, but I believe they're at an hour. And that's when they started like uh, changing up the cast. They uh, Candy, uh, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis left. Uh, Harold Ramis never came back because this is when he started to do Caddyshack and stuff like that, and he was in the movies. He he, he, he directed he directed some um, some episodes, but he, yeah, he never came back and started any. When you, when you think of the core SCTV cast, I keep forgetting that he was part of it in the beginning. Yeah, so according to him, um, like, they, like between 76 and 77, they like banged out and wrote 26 shows. And then um, between the second and third, third show, uh, it lost indication. They couldn't find the right network to pick up. They had to move. They moved from Toronto all the way to Edmonton to continue the show. Um, some of the cast was off doing other projects at the time, so... They brought in Rick, uh, Rick Moranis, Robin Duke, and Tony Rosado to round off the cast in season three because um, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, um, uh, what's it called? Like you just said, um, Ramis. Hal Ramis had, uh, had left to do other things. And then everybody came back in season four uh, with the exception of Tony Duke, uh, sorry, Robin Duke, and Tony Rosado who went to Saturday Live, and Harold Ramis went off to do his other thing. But um, they were there on like. Um, they're there, like, on a part-time basis, you know, and then, which is kind of cool, like, you know, it's not a lie, once you leave, you're gone. Yeah. So, like, you know, Catherine O'Hara and John Candy and even Dave Thomas left and came back and did, you know, and would come back and guest on all the time, but they, but they weren't, like, announced as a guest star. They would be just, like, you know, just, just interchangeable um, uh, part of the cast. The only people who were on there from beginning to end, you know, all for all, like, five seasons or whatever were, like, um, uh, Eugene Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, and Joe Flattery were the only people who were there for like every single season, all all the episodes. Everybody else was kind of like in and out. 
it, Eugene Levy's hair was so long during this period. It is mind-boggling. He that man has the thickest hair in history. He's like half Wookie. <laughs> That, that is the, the quintessential hair on helmets if I've ever seen one. It's so <laughs> <It's> odd looking. <laughs> when he would grow it out and he combed it back, it literally does look like Darth Vader's helmet popped on the top of his head. Yeah, totally. It's like it's yes, he has some serious volume on that thing. It's crazy. And and when I think when uh, Rick Moranis came on is when the show really starts to get going. That's why I told you you kind of just skim the first two seasons, but if you move on to season mm-hmm. three, that's when it really starts to. Uh, it's rhythm picks up. It's it's got more um, relatable sketches. Um, I really think it, Rick Moran has kicked it in the butt. And of course, that's when we get yeah, our he first. Did, he did like, some really good. He did some re- really good impressions. I didn't realize how what a good impressionist he was. Yeah, I didn't he, know he, he did, did, did a this, George Carlin. <laughs> yeah, I was about to, about to say that he did a spot on George Carlin, which I've never heard anybody do. I'm like, oh my god, that's perfect. Because <laughs> like, that's not an easy. That's not an easy impression to do. It's like you know, what I mean? but it's like, I mean, it was kind of like a dated version of his. You know what I mean? It was. Kind of like a seventies-ish version You're right, of George Carlin, yeah. but still, but still, it was spot on. The uh, the movie Strange Brew came out uh, in the middle of all of this, and I feel like that's. I uh, Rick Moranis did not finish the show, correct? He was only on for a couple seasons, and then then he's just started yeah, doing I, movies like crazy I, after Strange Brew. I think, I think he was on for maybe season three, and maybe part of season four. Yeah, if, if anybody broke out immediately, it was him. I mean, yes, John Candy did very well, but John Candy had more time to uh, for people to see him. But Rick Moranis, like, just a year and a half, and he was just, boom, in every movie. Yeah, yeah, I guess he figured, um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, never, I didn't really get any of it. It's funny, I saw a documentary, but he wasn't on it. So I really didn't get his, his take for a leaving, you know, or, or even, like, you know. I, I guess I understand why... Um, why Tony Rosado and, Ro- and Robin Duke left, but yeah, I'm not really sure why why he went on to do other things. Because apparently, I guess you were allowed to kind of like the same relationship they had started live as with their actors, like during the off season. Yeah, you can do whatever move you want. You know, it's not they're not going to hold that up. So I'm not really sure. It's you know, perhaps he didn't like the grind, but yeah, I can cast, see. Was, oh, when when you get to season four, that's when it had to be just torturous because they were now competing with SNL. Um, not mm-hmm. for ratings, but NBC was trying to replace what Fridays or something. What were they trying to replace? I think it was Fridays. Yeah, I'm not sure. But it went to 90 minutes, yeah, and so they had to pad it with stuff from the previous seasons, and they had to come up with sketches immediately. And it's not the pace that they normally worked at. Well, I mean, according to um, according to some of the uh, the castmates, it, it wasn't really cutthroat like it was on SNL. I mean, not that it wasn't stressful and it wasn't tough to do, but like as far as SNL is notorious for being cutthroat, like stabbing your your cast members in the back because you want to get your material on the air, you know what I mean, and that kind of stuff. Where you're, you're competing with each other. Uh, according to them, um, it was it was competitive. It was co- it was sorry, it was cooperative, not competitive. So they they um, I think the, I can't remember the, the the creator's name, but he uh, his his motto is doing the work to the uh, top of your skill, integrity, intelligence. Uh, you served the show, not your bank account, and uh, you served your ego. Uh, oh, sorry, you, you weren't there to further your ego or your ambitions. So the, the, uh, the scene was supposed to be cooperative, not competitive. But that doesn't mean you didn't have to put in a whole lot of work and there's stress to get that show together, you know what I mean, and the editing and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it comes with its own, its own set of stressors, which probably not the same as you'd have like, on a Hollywood movie set for that matter. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, also the attitude in Canada is way different than New York. 
I mean, like only some of them are actually Canadian. I mean, they are filming it in, in Toronto and then in, in Edmonton, um, which was kind of cool because they got to know almost everybody. And Edmonton was like sort of like a much smaller town back then, uh -huh. according to them. You know, so it's almost like they were like they were like neighbors with everybody, like you know, like in this small town area. They're like everybody's friend. But um, you know, a lot of them were like Chicago natives, or, you know, uh, Michigan natives. You know, they weren't actually. Well, I think only maybe a part of the cast was actually Canadian. So. I mean, everybody who worked, all the cameramen and post-production crew was all Canadian, I'm sure. But I didn't know, I did not know until just this moment that there was a season six that never aired on NBC. I always thought the show wrapped itself up on NBC, and it went to cable. Mm -hmm. huh. Yeah, it's weird. They, they, they always, they'd have, first it was on CBC, and then it was some other, um, so it came on in 76, you know what I mean, like. I thought it came on much later. I didn't realize it came on like a year after SNL premiered. It came on like around 76, but it was on, on exclusively in Canada. They weren't airing it over here yet. And then like they had some other channel uh, was able to pick it up and uh, broadcast it, I think in maybe 78 or something. And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and then they struggled to get syndication with other networks. It was just, it was a whole hassle. Keep Just, just keeping the show on the air was a hassle in of itself, you know? Yeah, it's kind of impressive that it lasted as long as it did because it was so sporadic. Yeah, it's weird. I remember it going later, but I think according to the thing, it went. It stopped in '81, but then they had, but then they had other. Um, like you said, it was it lived on cable for another season, and then I think they had it officially went off the air for good in '84. But I think that was just compilations they did, um, like you know, late night. They'll have like some sketches like thrown together. And yeah. I think that's I think that's how I remember seeing it because I don't remember seeing it in '81. You know, I remember seeing it later, but I think it was after the show had already gone off the air, and it's before it went off the air. It's, it's after they stopped filming like new episodes, but mm -hmm. before it went off the air for good. Yeah, I feel like I used to watch. I want to say it was the in the '90s after SNL for like an hour they would have SCTV as like another padding to keep you watching, yeah. and and that's when the first time yeah, I really I, seen the show. I know I saw it sometime in the mid '80s, and I thought I thought it was still on the air, but I didn't realize that it wasn't. And it makes sense because I'm not realizing it. Wait a minute, Martin Short's already on SNL. He's not going. He's not jumping back and forth. Yeah, you know, I was surprised about so this put... too. Like so much of the show is unknown to me. Is I thought Martin Short had been on the entire time, but he was only on for two seasons. So it yeah. makes sense why he wanted to go over to SNL because he probably still had a lot of work that he wanted to do, and he just got to take it over there. Yeah, no, I remember when I was hearing about, oh, oh my God, SCTV had all these legends like Harold Ramis, John Candy. I'm like, I, I assumed they were there for the whole run. I didn't realize that, you know, like, you know, three, like one season, two season, two and a half, three for some people, you know. And yeah. Same thing. I, didn't, I I wasn't really familiar with the whole history of it. Well, and unlike a lot of the I mean, SNL. How could we be? We were, like three, we were like three and four years old at the time, you know, so how could yeah, we even know? Yeah, true. Know? The one thing that I notice is, um, for most part, SNL guys don't really hang out with each other. There's small groups, like, you know, uh, Dan Aykroyd always seems to be connected to SNL guys. He's in so many things with them. And the, the frat pack with Sandler, he always sticks close to his group. But the way that the SCTV guys for the next, like, 15 years were so bonded, they're constantly in their each oh, other's God. productions and, and, and stuff like that, it was impressive that they must have really loved working with each other. Yeah, no, they they had a really they had a great camaraderie. I saw a documentary, um, you know, and actually a lot of a commentary by Howard Ramis, and uh, according to him, he said like the show had a cult following. It was kind of like known as a comedian's comedy show, 
they they kind of made the show more for themselves than they did that than they did for the audience. You know, they made content that they found funny that not necessarily would be appreciated by a larger audience, but um, they, I mean that was the hope they would anyway. And they, according to him, you know, you either bought into the premise of some of the sketches or you didn't. That's just kind of the way it was. But they had they had an amazing camaraderie, and and certainly after they moved to Edmonton, it was even it was even a stronger bond, especially by like by like the core cast. Yeah. So it's like yeah, but 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 they brought that camaraderie with them from from the main stages in Toronto and Chicago to the TV, and it just it's just it's just kind of that that core philosophy that um like for life of me I wish I remembered the, the creator's name. That's kind of the core philosophy that he preached. They brought with them from the stage to the studio. And yeah, and they're, they're, I mean, to this day, they're all, they're all really good friends. Yeah, it's sad that we lost a couple of them. Uh, Harold Ramis died a few years ago. We lost John Candy, uh, John Candy a, a very long time ago. And uh, Tony Rosado died, I think, about six years ago. Yeah, no, no, like 2017. Really? Oh, is that recent? Okay. Yeah. And, and my funny thing yeah, is, every time every time someone told me that he played Mario on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, I always thought he was the live action version. Then when I saw Tony Rosado, I was like, "That's not the guy I thought was." I didn't realize that he did the voice <laughs> in the cartoons of Mario. It makes sense, yeah, because he does that. He did that Italian Chef on the uh, on the show, which is which is pretty good. It's one of his better one of his better sketches that he did. Yeah, and uh, I think Robin Duke is a treasure, but she doesn't really explode until she gets to SNL. I think she's one of the great forgotten. Uh, actresses from that show but of course SNL is legendary for not supporting the female cast that well um, SCTV has been much better I think Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara have been um, is still very well respected and get a lot of good work according to, according to them they didn't get writing credits all the all the male members got writing credits well forget what I just said that's so bullshit got, <laughs> no well I mean they weren't bitter about it I mean they agreed to do the documentary they were in it so that was just kind of that was just male sh- that was just Part of the course male chauvinism that was going on back then, and then they weren't perturbed about it back then. They're a little perturbed about it now, but that's just that's just like the, the male for whatever reason. Male male cast members got writing, you know, got writing credits, so they got so they got additional pay, you know, you know for uh, for that. But you know, I mean, they're they're a little bitter about it, but they're like, eh, you know, it was it was the way it was back. Yeah, no excuse, but you know, you just kind of yeah. deal with it. But you know, work that shit now. Right. Get, you know, I, the, the great part is, like you said, that they still work together. Have you watched Shit Creek at all? I'm sorry, what's that? Shit's Creek. Oh, I heard great. I heard good things. So. It's pretty good. Catherine Hare <laughs> is so off the charts weird, and uh, Eugene Levy is just desperately trying to hold his idiotic family together. <laughs> I, I, I hear his son. I hear his son's pretty good in that as well. He is. He's really great in that. Same eyebrows. <laughs> Legendary <laughs> he, eyebrows. He, he looks like a. He looks like a way more handsome version of Eugene Levy. Which is Eugene Levy looks him. like if uh, Geppetto made a Muppet a real boy. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't look like an actual human. He looks like. Yeah. He looks like a. He looks like a caricature of a human for sure. The sad part is I think some of the projects they did after this, uh, cinema-wise, didn't work out. They did uh, the Cannonball 3, um, which everybody knows as Speed Zone in America, but it was written by Martin Short's brother and uh, has um, Joe Flaherty and John Candy and Eugene Levy, and that was a huge flop. Uh, Who's Harry Crumb didn't do very well. Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, Maniac Mansion. Have you ever seen that show? What's it called? I'm sorry. Go Maniac ahead. Mansion. It was created by Eugene Levy and starred Joe Flaherty. No. Yeah, it was off like three or four years it, on the Family Channel. It was like the first original television show, and it is not good. 
did he play like his Count Void character or something? Kind of, in a way. It's if I remember correctly, it's based on an old PC game that was popular on eighty six, eighty seven, and it got turned into a show by Eugene Levy. And it's just this guy who's a mad scientist, and he creates all these wacky creatures, and, and he has like a, a baby who's a giant, and it's, it's stuff like that. But I watched it, and I was just completely flummoxed as how that stayed on for so many years. <laughs> I remember there was some kind of movie where like. Maybe if I'm remembering correctly, was like Eugene Levy and maybe John Candy were they both security guards? Or yeah, something? it's armed and dangerous. That's an okay one. There you go. Okay, I I don't know if that was an SCTV you know uh, related movie, but I just I, I just remember them being in it. Yeah, that and the what they did before they did Splash together, and I think the last project they did was Once Upon a Crime with uh, it was John Candy and Eugene Levy directing, and it it doesn't work. Or no, I think Joe Flaherty directed that one. It doesn't work very well. But isn't it great that Joe Flaherty yeah. finally got noticed? I mean, Freaks and Geeks really brought him to a new audience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? You know, I think his big second coming out was probably Happy Gilmore. That's true. He was like, he was so good at that. He was like one of my favorite parts in that movie. Yeah. Jackass! <laughs> Jackass! Hey, Shooter, we're still going to... Oh, my God. We're still going to Santa, right, Shooter? <laughs> But uh, yeah, he was really. I I didn't. I forgot how good he was. Cause you, you know, I mean, you think of like the breakout stars, but he was he was excellent in the show. He was well, like, you know, to me, I mean, he's kind of like way Phil Hartman was on SNL. He never really broke out, but he was always great uh, support, like the normal guy in a lot of sketches. Yeah. No. Yeah. He he did a, he did a great Kurt Russell impression. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. He did a yeah, he did some some characters which I didn't really think were necessary. There's some characters. That were there on every like God, um, Guy Caballero. Yeah, he well, that's that's kind of the one I'm major like, reoccurring is Guy Caballero. Yeah, he's like he's like the, the station like uh, owner, I guess, and uh, and he, he just prickly's the manager. And I was like, I could do with less of you guys, to be honest. But <laughs> but you you got you got to buy into the front end that this is some kind of like wacky TV station. Right? Do you Not remember the three shows. cartoons that came out in the late '80s, all based uh, around SCTV cast members? Well, I remember there was an Ed Grimley cartoon. Yeah, and that one, Count Floyd showed up in the live action segments. We had Camp Candy, uh, and then we had Gravedale uh, High with Rick right. Moranis. Huh. I do remember Camp Candy, but I don't remember the other. I remember Camp Candy and uh, the Ed Grimley cartoon. I don't remember the other two. Yeah, Rick Moranis uh, was a teacher who gets hired at a new school in Transylvania. I think it's Transylvania, and all the students are monsters, and he's the only normal one there. The whole the old, the old fish out of water. Yeah, well, and do you remember there used to be celebrity-based cartoons? Like, every single year, you got two or three of them. Kid and Play had a cartoon for Pete's sake. Oh, I remember Gary Coleman had that cartoon yeah. where he was a guardian angel. <laughs> but, um... To oh, see- yeah. Mr. T, for sure. Yeah, yeah Mr. T, Chuck on. Norris. Um, there's all sorts of, like, New Kids on the Block. It's so funny back then. But those three, I think they had more control over the shows. They still did the voice work. I hate it when a cast member, uh, when a star gets cast in a cartoon, but he doesn't do the voice. Then what's the point? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Exactly. The, uh, so SCTV is for, and that's a problem. You said it's a comedian's comedian kind of show, and I'm usually that guy. I'm usually the one who gets it. And for some reason, this is just lost on me. When I see kids in the hall, it is the perfect formula of Canadian quirky kindness mixed with the the more uh, pacing of an SNL sketch. 
Yeah, see, according to, I was watching the documentary, they said when they'd always ask SNL cast members what did they think was the funniest sketch comedy, and they'd always say SCTV. I don't know if that was them just doing, just being humble and being modest, it's like, oh no, they're way better. But, yeah, I don't see it that way. When I watch classic SNL sketches uh, versus classic SCTV sketches, you know, I kind of think the SNL sketches are, are better. They just, they just are. Not, not that there isn't gems in some, in some of the SCTV shows once in a while, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, like some I'd watch, like oh, even even though I found I find it amusing at first, it just kind of keeps going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't wrap up and soon enough. There know? was one interesting thing they did. I caught it in numerous episodes. Is they would have, I think, starting season three, they started having musical guests, but they didn't do it in front of an audience, and they found a way to almost build a sketch around the music performance like they would have these videos but then they would edit stuff in like America performs in one of the episodes and Eugene Levy plays a crazy security guard who's in love with someone on, on the set and he fascinates uh, like he dreams about the life that they're going to have together based on the song that's playing by America yeah it's yeah I mean I'm trying to think out of all the characters they had I guess I, I like I think Johnny LaRue was a decent character Ed Grimley was okay um, of course, McKenzie Bob Brothers are legendary, McKenzie. yeah. Yeah, Bob and Doug McKenzie, of course. Um, I guess maybe Earl Cannon Barrett, he's kind of like the uh, the, the, uh, the bumbling reporter, was okay. But, some, but Bobby Bittman, I don't know, it's that lounge comic which gets hired after a while. No. Yeah, I think Andrew Martin. I can't remember the name of the character when she plays that tightly wound uh, lady with the the horned glasses and the little box hat. Oh, that's 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 Edith, Edith Brickley. Oh, okay. That was, that was her. Yeah, that that one I thought I thought her character was unnecessary. You know what I mean? And uh, but she had some funny ones. She did this. Um, she did this re- recurring character where she was some kind of foreign lady who just couldn't speak English. Oh yes, kind yes. Like, it, it's kind of culturally <laughs> insensitive, but. It did make me giggle once in a while, you know, once in a while. You know. Yeah. But, uh... Um, admittedly. The, uh... I think all the seasons, when they're collected up in the 90-minute episodes, are available on DVD, except, I think, the Cinemax season. So you can find those. Um, but some kind so loaded a bunch of clips up on YouTube if you just want to check it out out of curiosity. Uh, our next episode is going to be about there's blood in the water everybody SCTV technically existed before the crash of SNL but they decided to hedge their bets and created Fridays to see just in case SNL flopped on its face they had something to back it up so uh, that'll be our next episode we'll discuss the two seasons of Fridays and I think they're on Hulu okay have you, have you ever seen have you ever seen Fridays I've seen like I've seen like maybe one or two sketches. I've seen like the classic one where like um, uh, Andy Kaufman, where, like uh, <laughs> Michael yeah. Richards get to a fight. Like, that's the one, yeah. Where he like he's mad at me for being so unprofessional. <laughs> like he like he like because he, he broke the fourth wall, and he's like you know. And I, to this day, I don't know if that was staged or not. I was like, yeah, that real? looks staged <laughs> you know? to me, but I'm not sure because Michael Richards commits. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and he's just that quirky, and like you know, now you know he's. That crazy, you can't really tell what's, you know, what's, uh, what's, say, we'll say with Andy Kaufman for that reason, for, for that matter. You don't know what's theatrics and what's real life. Yeah. It's kind of hard to tell. You know what's funny is I just started thinking about this. This is not going to be the only time that there's blood in the water where they were convinced SNL was going to die and they need to have something either on that network or another network to compete with it. Um, we're going to get this, I think, two more times. We're going to get it like in the late 80s and then uh, uh, mid 90s. You know how many times there's been an article 
uh, it's been so cliche, we call it Saturday Night Dead. Yeah. They just claim that last that last season wasn't done. It's already jumped the shark. It's you know, it's clearly they clearly lost their stride. And then of course, you know, it just it comes in cycles. It's yeah. like you know, it's like it's like it's like a baseball team or anything else. They have a rebuilding period where uh-huh. they you know. Yeah, has to be, there's a couple know. people at work who are like, Saturday Night's no good anymore. I go, why? Because you don't like the cast? He goes, no, it's too political. I was like, it's always been political. It's just because it's about your guy. That's why you're mad. It's yeah, always that, made that, fun of everybody. Exactly. Exactly. A YouTuber I was watching said that. Like, people claim it's more political now than it's ever been. And he, he, he broke it down. He's like, actually, maybe they have three or four more, sketch, four more sketches where it's more political this season than it's seasons past. But to be fair, this this has been a train wreck of the last couple of years. It's way more topical now. Yeah, it gives you so much more material than ever before. Yeah, like to ignore it would be would be glaring. If they were yeah. to do, if they were not to do any uh, political material, that would be a glaring omission. Like, yeah, yeah. People were like, "What the hell? He lost her I edge." Talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Okay, so that is it for this segment. And uh, Tony, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, as always, sir. All right, everybody, uh, I guess. Stargate 63468.5. Meteoroid the size of a pea. Just smashed into a circuitry Life support system compromised Scheduled spacewalk to stay alive Says massive damage from that small thing Synchronal buzz to fix the machine He's the best man for the job Put your spacesuit on, turn the knob
be far from Metascope 2 Tell me is the paneling yellow or blue We think you're beneath the Haladron Drive Better move on if we're gonna this at all i didn't plan this out at all so this might be the end of the episode <laughs> i don't know or we're part of another segment so um awkward goodbye hey everybody it is time for us to discuss the action movies of 1982 i'm michael robs on the other end with me i am way too excited way too much caffeine how's <laughs> <laughs> it going everybody ah what a weird, weird time. But you know what? If you can't find time to you know, check out some classic, good old-fashioned, kick-ass movies, you're not living your life right. Totally. So uh, we went through the lists, and we picked four films. I know there's more than just these films that came out in 1982. We picked these four specific films. Um, thankfully, I have never... I don't think I've ever discussed... I briefly discussed Mad Max when... Uh, a Road Warrior when uh, Fury Road came out with somebody on a podcast but I've never discussed the rest of these films this is all fresh to me and it's going to be a load of fun except maybe Forest Avengers <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we will we will cross that bridge when we get to it but uh, I have a few things to say <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off on a high note with maybe the greatest action movie of all time arguably I, I compare this to Die Hard and Raiders of the Lost Ark for changing the language of action films. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. And, and and I didn't catch Road Warrior for a very long time. I didn't see it until I believe 1997. During the summer when wow. Fox started airing these classic movies. It's the first time I had seen Fast Times Original High as well. And um, I had bought a pizza sub back when Subway had pizza subs. 
uh, and, wow. and watched The Road Warrior, and that became a tradition for me. Every single time I watched Road Warrior, which would be once a week for a year, I would get a pizza sub. Nice. Sadly, no more pizza uh, subs. Yeah, that sucks. That totally sucks. Um, yeah, uh, I, uh, I mean, not to brag, but I actually saw it much earlier than that, but, but that's because... My my father is 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 a huge huge fan of the Road Warrior. It's one of his all time favorite movies. I remember when uh, it was one of the first when DVD became a thing. It was one of the first DVD releases, like gradually from the as when DVD became like the new thing. And uh, that was like that was a real important buy for him when the Road Warrior came out. He was so happy to get uh, the Road Warrior. Like, and, um, did we, you notice they actually they dropped special hmm? features off that initial DVD? It did not have the introduction by Leonard Maltin and uh, the behind the scenes that the VHS tape did have. No, no, no. They I think they put it back for the Blu-ray. Yeah, when it when it first came on Blu-ray, because I, I remember that because uh, like Father Like Son, uh, when uh, I fir- I first got Blu-ray when Blu-ray started becoming a thing, one of the first purchases I made was the Road Warrior on Blu-ray. <laughs> So I'm keeping the tradition with me and my old man, you know. But uh, yeah, I remember the the Leonard Moulton uh, uh, introduction being on there, you know. And you know, I, I love that because Leonard Moulton is probably my all time favorite critic. It's it's one of those movies that I keep expecting Shot Factory to pick up now that they have a deal with New Line Cinema and uh, Warner Brothers. And yes. you know, loaded with special features because that's the one thing it has been lacking. It's lacking a commentary track. It's uh, lacking like a look back kind of thing, which I know it can be problematic because of Mel Gibson now. But you can get the rest of the cast to come back yeah. and discuss the film. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, like considering they Shout Factory released Mad Max, so it's like, uh, it, it's 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 yeah, it's a weird one because up until Fury Road, Road Warrior was considered. I mean, you still have arguments about which one is better now. But like Road Warrior was the clear favorite for a long time, so you think that's the one that people will want to see the most about, you know? So you whip out the special features for that one. But like, curiously, you haven't got much when concerning the Road Warrior. Yeah, it's uh, with the movie itself though. I, I didn't know anything about it at the time. But all I saw was like a commercial for it on television was going to debut on NBC. Um, right before Thunderdome came out and my mom was like that movie is great I love that movie and they took us mm-hmm. to go see Thunderdome which I still think is so weird that I never bothered to see the second movie <laughs> it's, I, don't, I don't get what's wrong with my brain um, but the the second one of course is notorious for trying to kind of reconfigure things a little bit and it was called Road Warrior Here while well, it's called Mad Max 2 Overseas and they right. made it so that you didn't necessarily have to see the first one. They kind of sum it up in, in flashbacks real quick in the beginning. It's its own oh, beast. Yeah, it's I, so different than the first movie. I, yeah, and the funny thing, too, is that uh, I, I, one, I, I'm not a big fan of recap sequences at the beginning of movies. Like, I, I'm much a big fan of, like, you know, where movies, like, they kind of blend in with each other. Like, you know, with a... The second one starts where the first one ended, but I I can't tell. This is a rare occasion where I really love the recap sequence because it's such a moody piece, you know, like the way it starts. My life fades, all that <laughs> remains is memory, and then you have that tracking shot. That, but most of all, 
I remember the road warrior, the one they called Max. And it's such a, like an epic kind of telling of Max's story before we get to, uh, to the movie. So uh, I, I, I'm really appreciative of that, that they were able to take a recap sequence and do it so well. Yeah. Know? And it just kickstarts it right into it. I mean, they don't waste any time with the opening sequence. And yes, this is a very low-budget movie. This is a $2 million film, but they pack everything into it. Because even when there isn't a lot of action, it, when it does happen, it's truly original. It really matters. What is it that you think that he got right about the post-apocalyptic world, whereas all the Italian clones and Filipino clones of this genre just couldn't get it right? It, it, it's the world. It's, it's, like, it's such a weird concept to, to take in. You know, a world in the you know past the post-apocalypse. You know, what I'm saying post-apocalyptic world, but it's such a believable way. Like you know that he sets it up, uh, George Miller. Like you know, you can actually believe like this. This the type of society would exist like that. I you know, what I'm saying like the, every, the way everything functions and the warring factions. You know, and it's like you know, I, I like how like the the main baddie humongous. Like he looks scary, but he's kind of like you know, almost like semi-reasonable, <laughs> if you will. You know, like he always kind of has like almost like a stock trader kind of way of negotiating. Right, I, I see him as more of a cult leader. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, but like his his negotiation tactics, like you know, just like you expect this kind of like. You know, gravely scary voice. And he's just, I'm gravely disappointed that you have chosen to affect you know, all the oil and the gas, the gasoline. So, how does the okay. timeline work on this? It's always, is it like, is every movie 10 years later? And I have no idea where Fury Road comes into all of this. Um, yeah, like there was a bit of confusion about where Fury Road, Fury Road is a bit confusing, but, uh, um, I read the, 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 the prequel comic and they, they set it up how everything works, but like, it's definitely after Thunderdome and stuff. Um, yeah, like it, it, it was seen that Max has been on the road for a few years, like in, like between the first one and the second one. I was I would say like it it, w- it would seem that way like without like having like a concrete number of years between the two, but uh, ten years is a good number to. That's what I figured. I figured every movie was ten years except I read the comic too and I didn't think it took place after Thunderdome. I always thought it took place between Road Warrior when his car was destroyed and he was trying to rebuild it and then Thunderdome, but oh wait no because he didn't have his car in Thunderdome did he? No, no. Okay, it's just because he like he was uh, twenty he was, in the first one, like he was a fresh cop, the uh, first couple years on the beat, thirties, forties, mm-hmm. and that would make him almost fifty in Fury Road, which that can't be right with Tom Hardy. So he got me. Yeah, yeah, like the, you know, I, the, the Hardy was just the one. Like you know, it was obviously it was it was conceptualized with Gibson in mind, but they just you know went with Hardy. You know, and it's just I mean, it is what it is. Like you know, this is a just fanciful world so it's yeah. like you know it, it, it's hard to look for logic in this kind of thing with the uh i remember they were trying to get one up and running in 2002 i think and uh yes. they were trying to rent space in um australia but uh george lucas took all of it for attack of the clones 
and they had the story lined up with the still Mel Gibson, but then it had uh, the Feral Boy coming back, and they were talking to Brendan Fair from Roswell about uh, playing an adult version of that character. Mm. That would that would have been interesting. But, but uh, wouldn't yeah, it kind I mean, of negated what he said though? Because at the end of Road Warrior, he talks about how he hasn't seen him in so long. I mean, I guess it doesn't necessarily. Oh yeah, they, yeah, that is true because because he does say you know that was the last we ever saw of him. Yeah, it's just now only in my memories. And he's like obviously an old man telling right. the story. Right. So like yeah yeah you you're absolutely right on that one. It would have been interesting if they had taken, say Mad Max dies and the feral boy decides to take up his mantle and he becomes the new Mad Max. He takes his identity, the way he dresses, the way he acts, and he goes out saving the survivors you know, after Max is gone. Right. That was the theory on Fury Road. A lot of people believe that Hardy uh, wasn't playing act uh, Max Rakitansky, but he was playing the feral boy as, you know, assuming the Mad Max persona. So like you know that that but like that was completely negated as a uh, you know untrue. Yeah, especially with this flashback. That. Yeah, yeah. But um, back to the road word. Do you think that the Friday the Thirteenth guys got that look from Road Warrior? It would. It would. It, I, I wouldn't be uh, surprised if, uh, if they did. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I wouldn't be uh, too shocked. You know, it's it's such a um, such an iconic look, you know. Like they even used it for um the box art for Friday Thirteen Part Five. It's like, like that's Lord Humongous mask on the cover. <laughs> what the hell is this? Yeah, and uh, Vernon Wells. This is the first time I think we'd ever seen him, and and he just like a fucking lightning bolt shoots straight through this film. Oh yeah. Uh, even today yeah. we have a we have a gate that we lock up at work, and. Uh, it has all this stuff behind it, so we keep the, you know, like gardening stuff, and we keep it locked when the store is closed. And I love to just go, the gates! The gates! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? Another thing I took from this is whenever there's something really difficult at work and nobody wants to do it, I'll look at them and go, I'll drive that tanker. I'm the only choice you've got. <laughs> no one knows what the fuck I'm talking about either. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get that a lot. I make references to so many movies. Like, <laughs> you know, why why did I make that reference? Nobody understands. Nobody gets it. But I think I think this is the only one of the four movies where it really has a very solid, appealing cast, and everybody makes decisions where um, it's really difficult. But you have to put yourself in their shoes. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's more difficult with this movie than it is Fury Road because. Uh, the struggle that Max goes through because now he's almost as wild as the feral boy. I mean, he's he's you know not taking any chances. Yes. He's not helping anybody else out. He's pretty vicious in the beginning. And uh, yeah, like Max is a bit of a prick. You know, yeah. like like he only, he like he he literally he only gets into this this whole situation because he just wants some gasoline. Like I think like Mac uh, uh, Mel Gibson only has like how many lines uh, I forget like quite a, just just a few and like most of them are I only come for the gasoline <laughs> you know what I'm saying so Max really doesn't give a shit about anything about the you know this battle between you know uh, societies and all that shit he just wants some fucking gasoline yeah. you know I was looking at the 
I remember when I went and saw Waterworld in the theaters and the scene where they attack the atoll, uh, about what, mm-hmm. 25 minutes, into, half hour into the movie, and I go, oh my god, yeah, yeah. they stole the whole sequence from Road Warrior. This is the exact same thing, you know, they're shooting the motorcycles over, they're busting through. <laughs> How did they not, yeah. like, go, what the fuck, guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I noticed that too. Like, uh, I saw it in the theater as well when it first came out, and I was like, this is basically Mad Max, the Road Warrior on Water. Like yeah. totally, just completely in concept, and and a lot of the same sequences. You and know, almost a hundred times the budget. It. It's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. But um, more rules though. I looked. At, yeah, I love both of them. See, that's the thing with the the post apocalyptic movies. There's so few good ones. It's like werewolf movies. The ones that are actually watchable, you're going to give them a little bit more leeway because they actually achieve something. Apparently, no one else is able to fucking do. Yeah, totally. Like I, I feel the same way about werewolf movies, but when they're there. <laughs> I think the thing I was thinking about with the Italian rip-off movies is they do have their own flavor. That's usually what makes them appealing is that they're really off-the-wall Italian style. But it seems more assembly line process where I imagine George Miller was 24-7 for two years working on this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Miller, you know, he definitely, you know, like I, I, I... so proud when like Fury Road came out and they were calling him Mastermind and stuff and it's like of course he is because you could see like his his vision and his pre-planning and all that stuff like uh, like when you watch the movies you know what I'm saying they, they come across as dead smack in the face where it's like the Italian knockoffs like they, they look at you know the aesthetic of it and they just it's just a copy you know copy and paste like yeah like you know ashless chaps and you know like kind of like fucking the hockey guards yeah lots of hockey and football gear (laughs) yeah like you know and like you know we get like some dune buggies and you know we're throwing some 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 motorcycles and rape and violence and like yeah yeah that's that's what we got out of it you know and it's like but you're missing the whole point yeah well what he puts together and i think a lot of it is his cinematographer who also was the cinematographer on Waterworld, is yeah he sets up these gorgeous scenes. When Humongous is uh, on the hill and the sun is just about to go down and it's got that glow of right. orange and red and he's talking to them over the microphone, you know that was a, we're going to wait all day for the perfect shot. Right. And here we go. You know, you got like five minutes to get this shot right. Right, right. Absolutely. You know, and, that, and that's, that's, you know, the sign of a true tour. Like, you know, like they, they just... You know, they wait for the, the the perfect moment. Like you know, it's not about like oh, you know, like we'll just we'll just go with that. And it's like no, it has to be this way. You know, because that's the you know, that's a vision you have right there. You know. Yeah. Well, it's also I think that he was making the movie first and thinking about selling it later. Whereas a lot yes, of movies, especially yeah. now, now is the curse. This is what bugs me about a lot of action movies: is hey, we have this formula. That we have to put together. We have this budget. We have this mm. star. We have this guy showing up for two days. We're going to pay him a fortune so we can put his name on the fucking poster. And mm. we have to pre-sell this in certain areas. And sometimes you have to make copyets for you know for all those people. This is a full-on, beautiful Australian film, and it never compromises his vision. And that's what he's always been, though. George Miller yeah, uh, yeah. rarely makes movies anymore because he's been screwed over so many times. This. What, the Justice League, he got fucked over. He got fucked over with Mad Max so many times. In fact, there's supposed to be a Furiosa oh, yeah. trilogy, right? And we're just waiting around for Warner Brothers to stop fucking him around? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers has been fucking George Miller since like the eighties. You know, he yeah. was he was supposed he was supposed to make Contact and the they they they, they literally gave him the rights to Mad Max so he could so he would not make Contact and it's like oh come on man and then yeah. you know they. They they let him do pre production on Justice League, you know, like right up to shooting, and we're like, nope, sorry, we don't want to piss off uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, so forget it. And uh, you know, all the, the the bullshit that he went through to just get Fury Road on screen, it's like I don't know why he just doesn't leave and be like, fuck you guys. It's because he needs the money, but I I almost tell you that maybe he needs to pull back and do a smaller, more personal one like Road Warrior. He could do. He could raise thirty, forty million dollars. I think in uh, fuck. Oh, just his name. Yeah, Kickstarter alone. Just his name alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just his name alone will will get him that money. But how many more years do we have him to finish his Furiosa tale? That is true. Like you know, I would love to see it, but um, if he never makes it, it's okay because like, look, you 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 gave us a final like footnote, like you know that stamp. With uh, Fury Road, like you, you know, if if you want to continue, like you know, you know, go out, fine, you know, I'll, I'll love exactly what you give it because you never disappointed me. But uh, if all the, the last thing we get from from Fury Road, I'm fine with that. You know, what I'm saying <laughs> he really doesn't have to continue. I'm, no, I'm not fine really. with I mean, I just about that. Road. You're right because a lot of directors they keep going too long, thinking, and, and they keep going downhill. And they keep thinking, well, this next one will fix it. This next one will fix it. This next one will fix it, and it never does. And then they just <coughs> really Scott, <coughs> really Scott. <laughs> I was thinking more like, like Joe Dante is a great director, but no one gives a shit, no matter how good or bad his movie is. They don't give a shit. They'll just dump it. Right. The 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 thing with Joe Dante is just that he is, uh, you know, he's just too much of like an in joke kind of guy. Yeah, I can see where that. it's like, uh, yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, we don't get this, you know, like, look at the Looney Tunes back in action. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the final sequence in Mad Max uh, 2. Do we? Do you want to call it Road Warrior or do you call it Mad Max 2? Because everybody seems to be on the... Um, I, uh, like, I understand, like, it, it, it depends. Like, uh, like, I understand, like, a movie is, you know, this is the real title. Like, uh, I, like with Bruce Lee, I understand that. Uh, the first one is Big Boss, so I call it the Big Boss. But like, I'm so used to calling like a movie like the the, the Chinese Connection, the Chinese Connection. I refer to it as Chinese Connection, even though I know it's Fist of Fury. With uh, the, the with Mad Max Two, like I know it's Mad Max Two. That's how it was made as Mad Max Two. But I'm just so used to calling it the Road Warrior. I just refer to it as the Road yeah, Warrior. Yeah, I just can't help it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I usually do. I don't call Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I usually just call it Thunderdome and then Fury Road. It's just it's just the subtitles are usually what you go by. Right, absolutely. But the final sequence is maybe the greatest action sequence I've ever seen. The only thing I can compare it to is a year earlier in Raiders Lost Ark when he's under the the truck, and, you know, and he's leaning on the he's he's holding on to the front of it while it's tearing apart and stuff like that. It's one of these go for broke fucking nuts. So I can't believe they pulled it off. And some of those stunts were yeah. so wrong. I mean, can't believe people survived it. Oh yeah, the one dude that that, that crashes into the buggy on the motorcycle, he goes flipping through the air. Like he he practically destroyed his leg because that was 
pretty much an accident. Like yeah. he was supposed to just go sailing over it, but uh, unfortunately, his foot clipped the the down uh, buggy, and which sent him flip. It's an amazing visual to see him flipping through the air like that. But like his leg was pretty much destroyed. It was like broken in like so many places. Like Jesus Christ. I honestly like, thought it was wire work. Until a couple years no. ago, I thought it was wire work. I was like, I didn't know they were doing that kind of stuff internationally back then. No, they were just they were just fucking trying to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's one of the few action sequences that really makes you. It kind of tears you apart as they're mowing down these guys. And you know the sequence mm-hmm. where the young lady's on top and she's trying to save her friend who, who's yeah. on fire. And she gets hit or whatever, but she's not dead. She's kind of hanging there in the barbed wire, and the other guy is trying to save her. And then they end up pulling both of them off the truck. A part of it's the music. Brian yes. May. Brian May makes one of the greatest scores of all time, and no one really talks about him. Uh, you know, when you talk, talk to a lot of legendary composers, but what he does with mm-hmm. the music is it's it's not overpowering, even though it's insanely powerful. But it yeah. it, it, it enhances everything. That that end sequence is just emotionally exhausting right and, and that's such a disturbing thing though because you know like you have this warrior woman you know she's in the in the battle and she dies and you know you're like oh you don't want her to die you know what i'm saying because you've grown attached to a lot of these people so it's like it's sad oh it's sad but to know for the fact that she's she's not really dead she's just slowly dying on it and she's suffering throughout this whole Thing, like this whole chase that's going on like she's just sit there kind of still alive and it's just like it's such a disturbing thing yeah you know what like when you consider like you know when you you know think about it it's like well, oh it, my god what's just... also scary is because they're so savage they're so psychotic they don't care about anything that they get the joy out of killing that is what right. scares the shit out of me yeah absolutely totally that that that's that a great point it is just uh like just like I, I I heard a point being made like the comparison between like Road Warrior and Fury Road about like you know how visually beautiful Fury Road is and like you know contrasted with the chase at the end of the Road Warrior where it's just now it's like this gritty kind of thing and it's like it's like when you like when I heard that point it's like yeah like it kind of is you know like you you think about the chase at the end is just this brutal but like visually beautiful but now it's the gritty one like the dark and dirty one you know what I'm saying like yeah well it's not George so choreographed that's the I think the yeah, little bit of the thing that holds Fury Road back is that it almost seems too slick yeah like you know like the, the, the chase at the end of the Road Warrior is just chaos you know just you know uh, on you know what I'm saying just pure chaos like out there you know, and then you have Max in there, like, you know, he's trying to sit there, you know, and drive this thing, and he keeps getting fucking attacked, and he's got the feral kid in there with him, and it's just, like, you know, a clusterfuck of, like, you know, trying to, you know, drive this thing, but it's just so, so awesome. Like, it is definitely the quint- the, the quintessential chasing, like, I know people go to Bullets, and, you know, and, like, the French Connection for chasing, and it's like, no. I, I, I when I think of chase scenes like you know the creme de la creme of it it has to be like the end of the road warrior yeah. even Fury Road still out there which is basically just one long chase scene like no I still prefer the uh, the one at the end of the road warrior 
It's uh, in my head. I had seen this so many times in high school, but somehow I thought that he fired his gun. Like he just like mowed him down with a shotgun over and over. We I watched it again this time. He only shoots three rounds. He loses most of his. Yes. Yeah. It's it's uh, interesting. So when he does fire his gun, every single time it matters. And I thought that was an interesting yeah. choice because they could have had him just go crazy because that's what they do in Fury Road is that it's constant ammo, ammo, ammo. Everybody has the most perfect shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, they really do have, like, a, a over, overabundance of ammo and shit. Like, she literally has a bag of, like, ammo. <laughs> and, yeah. like, the, the and that, that's seat. what bothered me about Waterworld is it's this post-apocalyptic world where they have hardly anything, but they have plenty of smokes and tons of guns. <laughs> Yeah, the, absolutely. Uh, um, we've been on this one for a while, but I think it is the best of the four. It's probably time for us to move on to our next film, The Challenge, with Scott Glenn winning the dopiest haircut I've ever... Oh, my God, does he regret that? He oh, yeah, that. oh, my God, I thought the same thing. Like, oh, like you know, his Dutch boy haircut. You know, he's supposed to be playing a badass with a Dutch boy haircut. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the haircut that um, Corey Feldman had in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. <laughs> it doesn't work on really at all. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> the uh, I had finally picked this up from Kino Lorber, and I accidentally bought the DVD, so I haven't seen the new Blu-ray print. But the the, the DVD version is not very cleaned up. I don't really like it. Um, mind you, yeah. uh, Frankenheimer at this time I think was kind of phoning it in a little bit, and he wasn't really challenging himself visually. And it does look like he just shot it really quick. Uh, especially the street sequences, it just doesn't look that good, and that's the only thing I think that uh, holds it back. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like I was, uh, it was, it was funny. Like you know, this movie came up because I had seen it years ago, like uh, the edited version um, on television. Like they, uh, I used to watch all my movies on a uh, when I was a kid on WPIX Channel Eleven. Before they became uh, the, the the WV, and then you know subsequently the CW eleven, but uh, back then like they were like you know the the movie station for for New York, and um, they used to show all the movies I seen the Rape, I seen the Punisher on there the first time, Deadly Friend on there the first time, Gate, you know all my favorite movies from my youth. But um, <laughs> that was the first time I actually seen this movie, but I seen it under an alternate title, really Sword of the Ninja. No shit. I didn't know it had an alternate which title. Which is, yeah, it was. I saw it as Sword of the Ninja, which is hilarious because there are no fucking ninjas in this movie. <laughs> so, do you was this in the eighties? Uh, no. Um, this was. I think uh, when I saw this, it probably had to be like the very early nineties. Okay. I was just wondering if they had repackaged it because the movie was unsuccessful and they repackaged it maybe because ninjas were so crazy hot in the 80s, but that, that is... I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the idea behind that. You know, ninjas were the thing. So, like, you know, like, oh, we'll put ninja in the title so, like, people will watch it and it's like, there are no fucking ninjas. <laughs> it's exactly clearly opposite. samurai. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they're clearly samurai. Like, there are no ninjas in this. But, um... I, I didn't discover two years later that the movie was actually called The Challenge, you know, which uh, was like, oh, it makes sense because, you know, obviously there are no movies in this movie. Well, this but, is one of those um, that was lost for years. Do you remember? I think the only time yeah, it ever came yeah. out on VHS was in the CBS Fox Big Box, and it was yeah. gone for decades, and we finally got it back on DVD. But you're right. The only way – I think I caught it on TNT maybe uh, late one Sunday night or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, it, 
it was like I said, it was funny that you brought it up because I was kind of going through Frankenheimer um, a bit, like you know when. So it, it like oh, you know, it makes sense that you know we talk about this one because I'm already going through Frankenheimer. I was uh, went through a, a prophecy uh, from '79, um, which stars so someone else who we're going to talk about yeah. uh, later. Um, uh, I also watched Ronin, which was a, a favorite of mine from is the Manchurian Candidate, and yeah, uh, I, I can agree with that. He's kind of phoning in because you know Frankenheimer is perfectly capable of doing much greater work. Like, of course, you go into like the Manchurian Candidate in seconds. So it's uh, I know that they they had a problem with that. Like I read that um, when it became time to filming, like. The script was much more complex, that you know, which much more filled with much more character moments. And uh, when it came time to film it, they cut that down on that, and they concentrated mostly just on you know, you know, the story at hand and the violent aspects of it, which he excels at. But then it's like you know, kind of you know, wish that would have loved to have seen the complete version of that script. Right. Well, I mean, John Sales wasn't John Sales really yet. He was still doing B movies. Yes. So I think that's why it didn't get a lot of cred, but then again, I have to say they fucked him over on uh, Mimic as well. So I guess having his name it doesn't always mean anything. But you're right. right. It, it, he was a guy who was a master of making heartfelt, smart, fun uh, genre films. I mean, he'd just come off The Howling yeah. and Alligator and Piranha. Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, I know, like, they said that uh, he was he was locked away from most of the movie just you know, they locked him down to make sure that he wrote, he completely rewrote the script. Like, he didn't even, he barely got to even see Japan the whole time he was there. That's terrible. Yeah, and this yeah. Uh, has a legendary Toshiro Mifune who is, uh, who is just killing. I mean, he, he's not in a whole oh, lot of the movie, but he's amazing. Yeah, like, the, 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 the amount of time he's in it, he's, he's amazing to 100% of his scenes. Like, he is just absolutely on fire like which kind of makes me sad that like look I am completely grateful we got Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi his performance is iconic but I re I remember hearing that you know Jeremy Fu was going had auditioned like to play or like been considered to play Mr. Miyagi and they said no because they feel his performance would be too serious and scary and it's like <laughs> what I would have given to have seen him as Mr. Miyagi, but I'm perfectly grateful for Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, but yeah, he is magnificent in the movie. Yeah, it's it was, this is one of the mini genre called I would I guess you call it gaijin films. You know where it's the white guy yes. who goes over there. I mean, you got only a few films like you got uh, Shogun. I think is why we saw any of these movies because that was such a phenomenon. Yeah. But we had this. I think there was Bushido Blade, The Hunted, Last mm -hmm. Samurai. There's only a handful of these movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is kind of like yeah, the the forgotten one of those movies because everybody remembers Shogun and everybody remembers The Last Samurai, but uh, nobody really remembers uh, the challenge. And um, it's kind of like yeah, I uh, I I really dug this one. I gotta say, like you know the whole way, like you know the, his portrayal of like you know just. You know this guy he's inducted in this, into this culture 
you know, just just ulterior motives, you know, and then like he becomes. I like I like those kind of stories. Yeah. So well, like I mean, this, this one, is like, one where he was more complicated that he wasn't an out and out hero, which is what you usually do in this genre. Is there already right. a hero, and this is the one where he keeps bouncing in and out, like he's kind of forced into it, and then he decides to go with it, and realizes he's doing something horrible, and then he befriends them, and then yeah. turns himself around. Yeah, absolutely. Like you know, just like the. The first time in his life where he feels a part of something, and something is meaningful to him, and it's like when he, when he like you know, when he tries to steal the sword, and he's you know he runs off with it, and he's you know, like it, and it's crazy too because he understands that he's not going to get away, but that's not the reason he turns back. Like he turns away because he knows this is wrong. Like he knows like you know, like I'm not getting away with this. They probably watching me but it's like that's not the reason like he's like no I can't do this I, I, I can't do this and then he comes back and he apologizes and they say oh you gotta do this in order you know to to you know approve yourself to us and he, he does it with no hesitation he accepts that you know where they bury him up to his oh neck and ground for five days yeah like you know he's all fucked up you know what I'm saying but he you know he does it you know what I'm saying because you know this 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 I belong here, you know. This is this means something to me now, you know, as opposed to like what the fuck I was doing in America, you know. And that's that's the kind of stuff I love about this movie. Yeah, and I and the final showdown is one for I, I really think it's a solid, really well put together action sequence. And they do the smart thing, like the way they did with the hunted, is they're not a master. I hate movies where all of a sudden they become a, a genius and a master out of nowhere. Yes. And, I mean, in this one, he still relies mostly on his gun, which he knows how to use in mm -hmm. his boxing skills, but he does get down with a sword. And when he does, he uses all the props around him, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Like, it's more of a Jackie Chan kind of thing where he's just fighting for his survival the whole time instead of being on the offensive. He's more defensive. But man, when he right. wins, holy shit, is that a moment? <laughs> oh yeah, that's such a glorious moment. I, I like that. I like how the final showdown is between you know Tashiro Mifune's character and like the character his brother, and Tashiro Mifune is obviously the superior warrior, and he he's obviously going to win this battle. And then like you know the fucking bodyguard has to intervene, which causes the brother to sever his fucking head, which is hilarious. <laughs> it just goes plop on the floor, <laughs> but he, he he shoots him in the shoulder, so he's obviously incapacitated. So that's when Scott Glenn decides that okay, I'm going to take up you know, like you know, you give me the sword, he's like, come and get it, and it, it, it's like you said, like you know, like it, it it would it would just be the worst thing if he was just like you know, obviously you know. Equal in, in 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 battle knowledge with this guy, but he's obviously not. This guy is obviously the superior fighter, and he's sitting there like just trying to survive this whole battle. He's sitting there trying to get away and throwing shit at him. Yeah, well, it's it, it's he, a sign of bravery though, is because he yeah. he, he is pretty certain he's going to lose, but he has to do it anyway. Right, right, absolutely. Like he's doing everything to just to survive. Like he he. He basically wins because of pure luck. Yeah. Like, he gets lucky that the dude gets his sword stuck in the thing, and he's able to, like, react on that and, you know, split his head in two like a fucking cantaloupe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Why is it Scott Glenn never really connected? Is it because of how he looks? Because I feel like he was red hot for a moment in the 80s and then just bleh, yes. gone. 
like the late eighties, early nineties, like especially like in the early nineties when he did, you know, uh uh Silence of the Lambs and uh Hunt for Red October, like that was probably when he was at his most relevant. And yeah, I don't know, like I always like Scott Glenn as an actor. Like uh I don't know, like I, I was laughing too because I remember I said to my roommate when I was rewatching this that uh he, he has the male equivalent of resting bitch face. <laughs> every, time you, every time you see Scott Glenn, he's got that face like uh, he, his son just told him he wants to have a career making uh, uh, sculptures out of afterbirth. Like, oh, just, God. Like, <laughs> like, he's just, like, every time you see, like, he just has that such a mean face. You know, I was reading something about him a few years ago when they were interviewing him for Daredevil. And he goes, yeah, I know I'm in my 70s, but every day I start out with a knife uh, routine to keep fit. And I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, oh, I loved him when he was on Daredevil. But uh, he was like, it was, it was, that one was so great to see Scott Glenn again. You know, uh, I, I've always been a fan of him. And like, yeah, it, it, it sucks, like, you know, because, you know, He's great in this. He was great in pretty much everything. Vertical Limits. Yeah. I stand by this movie as being awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like I was even thinking about like that that his cameo in Training Day. He's like absolutely like that. That whole scene is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Is where uh, they uh, they confront his character in his house. You know, the whole tense moment, and it's like, yeah, like. I wish, at least, like, you know, he would have been a bigger thing. Like, he was hot for, like, a brief moment, but it's like, I wish he would have been bigger than, you know, what the, he was given. Knowledge. Yeah, but we could write that about a list of people that we're going to discuss on this show throughout the years is these people who had a moment, and then bleh, whatever happened to them, I don't know. Totally. Yeah, but the opposite of the challenge, the flip coin of another Gaijin kind of film is, uh, I, I, I maybe the most boring Chuck Norris movie, in my opinion, I really did not care for this one. <laughs> Force Vengeance. <laughs> oh yeah, Force Vengeance. Like I, let, let me say this. I I seen this years ago for the first time, maybe like fifteen years ago for the first time. And uh, when, when we were discussing, I rewatched this, and I was actually enjoying this. I'm like, hey, this is this is fun. How come I I haven't rewatched this? You know, since you know, what I'm saying this is really fun. Until it wasn't. Yeah, it dies out pretty fast. There's a couple moments where it raised an eyebrow and I had to laugh a little bit, but it's all in, unintentional. You know the part... Okay, so here's the thing. Never have Chuck Norris do voiceover, period. He fucked it up in Octagon, you think they would have noticed. Oh my god, Ninja. Oh, that was believable, Chuck. No more... Don't do a second take. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, like in the Octagon, it was weird because he did it in a whisper... Like, like, why, why? I, I didn't mind it in this one. No, it's not like, as bad, uh, but it's still, I, he's not the right guy. Yeah, like, you know, like, Chuck has admitted himself he's not the greatest actor. Right, he's no so, Jim Rockford I don't know. with his narration. Right, like, I, I don't understand why, like, you know, filmmakers try to, like, like, hey, like, let's get you, excuse me, let's get you to emote more, Chuck, and it's like, he doesn't have it in him to emote. Yeah, I'm sorry, the weight of my mustache refuses to let my face move. <laughs> just have him be the silent badass and just kick a lot of ass and just get on with it. Like, we don't really need him to emote. 
Yeah, and I'm going to tell you right now, I... Okay, so is this the one... Oh, God, because I get as confused as the other one we just watched. This is the one where he's working at a casino in China, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's all that was interesting was the casino yeah. stuff. But I remember there's a sequence where he is attacking the guy, and he says out of fucking nowhere, <laughs> with no connection to anything, <laughs> the greatest man I ever knew was gay. And he's <laughs> torturing him. And I don't yeah, know why he threw that in there's a lot of weird touches like that, like stuff like, you know, nowadays was like, wow, you could never get away with that. But there was that. There was uh, where he visits uh, Bob Miner, his, his old army buddy, the, the great Bob Miner. And like the, the guy, uh, his buddy's like, uh, oh, he's dating a girl. She's 17 years old. And he's like 17. And you think like he's going to like, you know, be kind of like you're dating a 17 year old girl. That's, you know, he's like, oh, how do you keep up the stamina? And it's like, oh, my God. Oh, the yeah, 80s. like you know, so charming. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, see, the thing is, like, I was with the movie until the rape scene. Yeah, that's the yeah. thing. In all these exploitation films of the eighties, almost every yes. single one of them does it in such a hideous, exploitative manner. And it hardly ever tells the story. And you know, like, I, I love the Death Wish movies, but I only really love them on television because I can't sit through that. Right, right. That, I, that's why when we did 1981, I was so glad we didn't talk about Death Wish 2 because I wasn't like I. I think Death Wish 2 is fine, but it's just like it's it's one those those two back to back rape scenes. And yes, it's like, I don't like the second it, one. I think the second a, one is the flat out worst. I know five is boring, but the second yes. one, I love three and four. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I remember, I wrote uh, uh, a ranking of uh, a list of like ranking Death Wish movies for. Ultimate Action Movie Club, and um, I, I flat out put Death Wish Two last, like you know, and that's the reason I say like you know, I just can't get over those two rape scenes at the the very beginning. You know, it's just, just you know, it just saps the f any type of fun you think you're gonna have, it saps the fun right out of it for those two. And that kind of what happened with this one with Fourth Vengeance. It's like the movie had me into that moment. It's not like. You know, they don't show the rape, but, like, it's such a gratuitous scene, like, leading up, where he's, like, just slowly ripping her clothes off, and she's fighting back, and he's just tossing her around. And then you have the buddy who's there, you know, Bob Miner. He just had his back broken by the guy, so he's basically forced to watch this rape happen, and he can't do nothing. And it's like, you really don't need that. Yeah, it's a really like, mean-spirited movie. Yeah, like, you know, it, 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 it's just... I mean, and I'm, I meant to point that out. Like, Chuck really has a lot of those kind of movies where they're just fucking mean-spirited. Where it's just, they're just mean. I think that's why I don't like, I think that's why I don't like a lot of Steven Seagal movies, because they're fucking mean. Whereas Van Damme never yeah. really had. He had so much heart in his movies, and I just connected to it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Van, Van Damme is obviously the, the, the definitely the superior guy, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of heart and creativity. Video goes into the movies, yeah. Uh, as opposed to Steven Seagal, but we'll we'll talk about that. Later. Yeah, we'll get to him eventually Steven down that road. But um, yeah. I wanted to mention yeah. this. I didn't know this at the time. This was the most expensive Chuck Norris movie uh, with five million dollars. I think his uh, the next one was uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid with six million. I see those six million in Lone Wolf McQuaid. I don't see five million dollars yeah. in this movie. It, it probably went to just location shooting. Maybe they shot a lot of this in Hong Kong. Yeah. So like yeah, I don't I don't see I, I don't see it either. But uh, you know, you know like the like I said like 
Chuck just seems to have a thing for mean-spirited movies, and this one was fun until it wasn't. Yeah. It was just like, oh, you know, now now I know why I didn't return to this one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, now I get it. Now I said, why so fuck this movie? <laughs> yeah, well, it's also it's the director. The director had a couple hits before this, but he's not a good director. I, I don't like The Enforcer, and I don't like Every Which Way But Loose. The only the end of Enforcer. Wait, hold on. Is Enforcer... The one on the bus, or is that a Enforcer dirty hair? No, Enforce is the one with Tyne Daly. Oh, uh, okay, the one no. with the bus you're thinking of is the the Gauntlet. The Gauntlet. Uh, but I think he did that one too. Didn't? No, it's not in his. Uh, it's not in his filmography. I thought he did it too, but no, it goes the Enforcer, Caravans, every way, uh, every which way but loose, uh, Game for Vultures, whatever the hell that is, and then Force Vengeance, and it's just a bunch of TV stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I actually like the Enforcer. Him okay, so I had the wrong one. I like the end of Gauntlet, but I don't like Gauntlet. You know what? Most of the middle chunk of Dirty Harry is good. I fucking hate, and we're never going to discuss uh, what Sudden Impact. Sudden Impact is disgusting. Oh, yeah. It's it's an exploitation film, and I will stand up for Deadpool. Yeah. Deadpool's fucking awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I find myself always standing up for the Deadpool. Dead, I actually made a. I, I was on a podcast. Uh, I recorded a podcast last night, and I made a, a, a Deadpool reference. Nice. <laughs> and it was like, uh, oh, uh, they thought they thought I was talking about the uh, fucking Ryan Reynolds uh, Deadpool. <laughs> I was like, no, the Deadpool. <laughs> oh, oh, the Dirty Harry movie. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that always happens with me. I make references to movies in my life. The uh, the final film we're doing is going. To, I can't talk. The final film we're going to discuss. Yay! Words are good. Jeez, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am, I listen to some of my podcasts and I'm so mushed mouth sometimes I forget how to be professional. And um, I the jury is our final film and it is my yeah. fate. No, Road War is my favorite of the bunch. Who are we kidding? But I the jury is so. It almost doesn't count as an action movie. It's almost like a thriller noir. You know, uh, a sleazy grindhouse film done in the best oh. way possible. I loved it, but there's enough action, especially in the last half, I think, that qualifies. Yeah, it. yeah, like uh, this one. When you said sleaze, I'm like, oh, this was just sleazy in the extreme. Like that whole middle section, like it starts off as like, uh, you know, action, private eye kind of thriller, you know, and, and it's cool, and then. For the whole entire second act, it just turns into like this sleazy sex movie, and it's just like that whole scene with the with the giant orgy. Yes, <laughs> holy shit. The... Yeah, and then you got uh, fucking Khan's right hand man from Wrath of Khan. Oh yeah, Jensen Scott is amazing in this. I actually believe that he he makes me believe he's a creeper. Oh yeah, he 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 gives off that creepy vibe. You know, he he was perfect for that in this one. He's kind of like a like a uh, like a more kind of uh, uh, physically fit Richard Lynch. He reminds yeah, me. Yeah, I can of. see that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it was just like, oh, he was just such a creeper, you know. And it's like, oh my god, when he's he's just completely just you know viciously assaulting the the, the two twin, the blonde twins. Oh yeah, he's wow, a... this whole and it's intercut with this whole orgy going on and. Fucking Armand Asante is sitting there just casually watching everybody just going to town on each other, and I'm just like, 
Holy shit. I st- the first time I saw this was on AMC, and I still, it must have been a half hour long because I had to cut so yeah. much out of this. Yo, like, totally. I'm like, oh, I, like, you know, it started off good with action and stuff and all that. And then it just d- develops into this kind of like Skinamax movie. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck happened? Oh, I, I bet like you, a- I bet you for a decade this played on Cinemax. This is probably one of their biggest oh, yeah. hits. Because Cinemax was always the place where the... If it was a, a studio film, it would start off on HBO, and depending on how raunchy it was, they would move it over to Cinemax. Because this is probably the only aired for a couple months after 10 o'clock. And, uh, yeah. oh, it was probably on a loop <laughs> on that channel. Oh, I could imagine. I could imagine it was. Like, this This just, like, degenerates into super sleaze. And it's like, of course, it makes sense, because it was written by Larry Cohen. Yeah, who was Larry fired. Cohen. And I, I'm... Gonna, I'm yeah. not speaking ill of the dead, but he doesn't have the same eye. He has a talent for making very creative, unusual scripts, but when it comes to filming, he's a very flat director, and I, I don't know who the, Richard T. Efren... Oh, I know who Richard T. Efren is. He's uh, He did the second V miniseries. Um, I think he has yeah. a real eye of capturing New York during this time and making it look glamorous and at the same time horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, like he was—he was one of those uh, quintessential New York filmmakers. Like, like, like we—I remember we discussed him as when we were talking about James Glickenhaus, another quintessential. Like, like they really know how to capture the CD side of New York, especially in the '80s. Yeah, and this all—it it, it, it captures like not just the sleaze, but the disco era of New York. This is at the yeah. very tail end. Yeah, like you know. Like I remember uh, uh, having a discussion where it was like you know, like movies like like when a, when a you know movies that leave a, you know when we go into a new decade like the movies like they still kind of retain that you know like aesthetic uh, from the previous decade in like the beginning years like uh, I remember we had this discussion because of uh, Stone Cold. Like right. Stone Cold was released in ninety one, but it still retains that eighties action movie aesthetic. And like you know, this is this is kind of like that. Like you know, this is eighty two, but it still retains that kind of seventies aesthetic. You know, what I'm saying with seventies was like you know the glory days of porn. You know, and this kind of feels like you know softcore. You know, for the whole middle section, you know. Right. Well, it's it's uh, like um, uh, De Palma was trying to push the limits of how much he could yeah. get on the screen. And it feels yeah, like there's a contest yeah. between these two movies to see how far they could go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing I, I, I got to give credit for the movie. This is um, this is the first time I actually seen Barbara Carrera's boobs in a movie. I've never seen Barbara Carrera's boobs before. You know, I've seen Barbara Carrera in a few movies, but I've never seen her boobs before. And it's like, <laughs> like, oh. like, do you feel like a little kid when you say that? And it's like, oh my gosh, I do. Like, I'm 13 years old, and I just, <laughs> I've been like that. But no, like, it, it really felt like that because you know, I'm saying, she's oh, a Bond it's, girl. It's it's uh, boy, do yeah, Bond uh, girls never say never again. Yeah, Bond girls really got it. Oh, oh, so you're right. It was after this. So why yeah, is she famous? Yeah, she what did. is she from? Is she just a normal everyday actress? Like, I thought yeah, she was. She was oh. like you know. She was considered like you know. She she's absolutely gorgeous woman. You know, like you know the sex pot and stuff. And then you know you had never say never again. She was also in Lone Wolf McQuaid. Uh, she played uh, um, Chuck's love interest in that. 
But uh, like, so I seen that. I seen Never Say Never Again, and I seen her in a few other things. But this was the first time like I actually seen like you know where it's like oh oh I didn't know she was you know nude before, and it was like oh wow like you know. Uh, know, you like, need to see. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. There's a there's a movie called Point of Impact. It's only ever been on VHS. It's Michael Prey and uh, Michael Ironside, and it's one of the few Michael Prey movies to have a real budget. Oh, that is another one that played on Skinamax quite a bit. Nah, nah, nah. I gotta see that one. Uh, I haven't checked that one out. So this is during that revival of noir detectives. It's it started with uh, in the mid '70s. We started getting like the Long Kiss. Was the Long Kiss Goodbye? What's the one with um? Or is it just a long goodbye with uh, Elliot Gould, which is supposed to change the genre? I think. Yeah. It's, and then there's uh, yeah. uh, Robert Mitchum was coming back with his trilogy of detective movies, so people start being uh, becoming interested in this genre again. But most of it was pretty safe. It was borderline TV mm-hmm. level, and you know, in, speaking of, we had my camera already on television before and after this. And mm-hmm. this is the only one that feels like it really ups the ante with where Mickey Splane was trying to go with his stories. Right. And I think a lot of that had to do with the casting of Amanda Sante in the role. Like, Amanda Sante is a very strong actor. Like, uh, he, like you know, he's, he's got that, you know, macho machismo, you know, male. But he also has the perfect. sex appeal, which was not common with most yes. of the people who portrayed uh, Mike Hammer. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, like you, you can see, you know, you can see why men fear him, but you can see why women love him too. You know? Yeah, you know, but, uh, like I love this, you know, the scene where like after you know he discovers the you know his best friend is murdered, and he goes to see the wife, you know, to, to question her, and he's like, did you tell him? Did you tell him? You know, like what you know happened down there? Did you tell him you were friend is telling me? Huh? Get fucked! <laughs> you know, and it's just like, like that's a great scene. Like that was my favorite moment of his performance but like he's awesome throughout the rest of the movie too and it's like I remember reading that uh, he thought his casting in the lead role was a mistake <laughs> yeah I don't like, see it I, sure I, I've heard that too some people I was listening to a review about this and they said that he's the wrong guy because he can't handle action and I'm like did I watch a different fucking movie than you <laughs> yeah right what the fuck are you talking about that'd be great <laughs> well in, in Alpha I, I'm, a, I'm pretty hardcore on Mickey Spillane and my camera I've, I've watched so many of them and read the books and there's only two guys that captured not only the sex appeal and the action guy, but the heart. He's tough, but he has a heart, and that's why everybody's loyal to him. And it's only in yeah. this movie and then those series with Stacy Keach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, like you know, you could you could see you could see why like he he captures that perfectly, like. Without really so much like in dialogue, just in like the way he conveys the emotion, like when uh, like his secretary gets captured by a Rathacon buddy, um, and like you know the way he's kind of like you know, are you okay? Are you okay? She's like, yeah, go get him. You know what I'm saying? And it's like you can see why she she's in love with this guy. Like you know, obviously you know. She, she she obviously wants to to bone this guy too, you know what I'm saying? Because all the women in this world want to bone him. They they want a piece of Mike Hammer, you know what I'm saying? Like literally, the movie opens with him uh, the, with him banging the client's wife. So like you you can understand why the women love him because he's such a caring individual. Yeah, you know? and it's and it's loving and you. 
Go ahead. Okay. Uh, what I was going to say is the movie is interesting because it does start off as almost a cliche of detective novels, but it would make sense because yeah. this is one of the early like hardcore like pulp novels that was, you know, in the fifties we had that revival again where it was more uh, explicit, and yeah. it starts off as telling that classic detective story with all the cliches, and it turns into a sexual thriller where it almost at a point where Judson Scott's like a serial killer. And then it turns into this yeah. badass, I'm going to kick some mafioso political ass, you know, and go in with my machine gun and take somebody out. And I think I think the final sequence with Alan King begging for them not to shoot him blows his ass up is one of the most... <laughs> but it gets even better, the showdown in the greenhouse, and he has that yeah. trick... I don't... Oh, if you're listening, you're going to get... I gave away so much already, but there's a trick gun gag I never thought of, and it works so well... <laughs> Right, absolutely. Like it's almost like three movies in one. Like it's a like detective thriller, then it becomes like a sex, like you know, kind of crime thriller. You know, like psychosexual. Right. That, that middle chunk is kind of like man a, army. Yeah, but the middle chunk's kind of like the Shannon Tweed, Andrew Stevens stuff we got in the nineties. Yes, yes, yes. That's a perfect uh, 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 thing to, to compare. A perfect comparison, if you will. Like you know. Like perfect Skinamax fair, you know, Shannon Tweet stuff, you know. <laughs> and then, like, you know, the third half, you know, like you said, like the greenhouse stuff, it's just like a one man army action flick. And it's just like, this is just like, this is just a roundabout, like, kind of movie, you know, it gives you everything, you know. Yeah, it's, it's one of those lost gems, just like the challenge. That thankfully Kino mm-hmm. has picked up, cleaned up, and put out on Blu-ray, and I'm ever so grateful for that company. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I remember like I never heard of either jury until I saw I was in uh, a Barnes and Nobles and it was under the new release title. I'm like, the hell is this? I never heard of this. And then I didn't watch it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't pick it up. But then like you know you this was one of the suggestions and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I always wanted to check this out. So I figured like, yeah, like we'll talk about this one because, you know, it gives me a reason to check it out. And then I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is, this is just the most interesting movie, <laughs> the most interesting movies ever made. Yeah. I feel like this is the kind of movie that was peak 42nd street. Like they got this movie. Oh like, yeah. No more of this cheap shit that we're with. This is a classy studio film. That's so crazy and filthy. <laughs> Right, absolutely. I, I said I said to, to my roommate because I watched this with her, you know, uh, me and her watched this together, and uh, I I know like you know, this is for the purposes of your show, hit rewind. But I was like, this is perfect trash cinema. It is. Topic. I was on the border. If you didn't if you didn't choose this one, I was like, I should save this for trash cinema. But uh, God, no, this so, is perfect. Yeah. I, this had to be talked about, but this is perfect trash cinema fair. Like, like, why did we talk about this before? I don't know. I just didn't think about it. We're at 100 episodes right now, and uh, well, almost to 100. The 100 episode is going to be the Hall of Fame episode. We're going to be taking a long yeah. break. Uh, I just need. I have too many shows going right now, and I just need a pause from that for a while. Um, so I can work on Hit Rewind. Hit Rewind is where I'm really focused, and that's where we're going year by year through all these things in pop culture. And that's more linear Absolutely. and more focused, whereas a lot of these shows is just bouncing around, and I can't focus, and I don't know what to choose. Yeah, I hear you. 
I've been there. I've been there. Like, you know, ever since, uh, like, you're the one that basically gave me my start in podcasting, you know, and then, like, you know, I've been making the rounds ever since, and it's like, oh, God, like, you know, if I'm going through this, imagine what Michael's going through, you know, because <laughs> he's, so, he's so much more prolific than I am, you know. It's so, too much I can sometimes. imagine the stress he's going through. Yeah, I don't know what I'm I can thinking. Imagine, yeah. I can imagine the stress you're going through this shit because I'm, I'm, I'm running one show and I'm already stressed the fuck out. Well, I, this, this is the thing is that um, this is how I deal with work. Uh, I, that drives me insane. And this is the place where I can be me and I can talk to people who are interested in the things that I'm interested in, whereas I don't get any of that at work. And I used to get really revved up because I wanted to... And truth be told, I wanted the show to be like really successful, and I wanted to be famous from it, so I could do this instead of my other job. And the reality is, right. I missed that window. I think because I didn't take enough time to make the, a really good show production wise, um, and I was a little late to the game. So by the time I was really kicking the high gear, it's when all the other people with real money, real studio, you know. You know the, the guys uh, that are already famous; they already have money, and they're in the podcast field now. And they took the spotlight away from you know your normal everyday guys that started this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I understand what you're saying, but uh, you know, I, I think that uh, you create the entertaining atmosphere. You know, this is why I love you know doing guest appearances with you. You know, so I think you know. I mean, it's it's more like a less like a you miss your window and more like a kind of you just you know late into it, but eventually you catch on because yeah. I, I think like like I said like it, it's so entertaining to do this kind of things you know especially the creativity you bring to it you know to you know go from the eighties onward I, I I find that very you know special you know consideration so I think it's just more like a better late than never kind of thing. yeah and. and- the other thing that I, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying if you ever decide to do it, I'm not knocking it. It's just something not for me. The thing where people interview famous people, you know, people in the industry, it's very, very, I did it for a little while and I just realized it's not the kind of thing I wanted to do. I don't want to be invited to their party anymore. I want to have my own party and, you know, with the people that I don't have to promote and kiss ass and, and kind of yep yep while they right. talk this is us hanging out yeah this is especially in the, this day and age where we can't hang out at all with anybody it seems this is a way right. for me to have a fun get together with my friends and if other people want to come along great that's the you know I, I learned a lot from you from that you know where it's like where you know I was like oh my god I'm not gonna do this and like I remember you saying you know I, my nervousness and the, the my first appearance like you you know you were the the first time I ever did a podcast you know you invited me in and I'm forever grateful for that and you said the way you looked at it was um you know it's just just look at it as a conversation between two pals you know right. what I'm saying I invited you to my house and we're sitting there with you know with you know we're having fun talking about movies and stuff so that's how I look at it you know you know when I you know when I do various you know appearances on other podcasts you know and I'm just like you know I'm just having a conversation with a buddy you know it's not like I'm sitting there you know doing an act or you know performing right or you're trying to interview for a job that that's another thing people right. when people have to perform that's the hardest yes. part 
Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just there, there talking with friends, and you know, that's how I'm looking at it. And if I can't, if I don't feel like that, then, you know, I don't want to be involved with that. You know what I'm saying? If I don't feel like, you know, you know, we're friends and we're just having a chill conversation, then, you know, it's, it's no it's no point in me having this conversation with you. you know? Yeah. I, I usually don't. So, so. I usually don't guest on other people's shows because their format sometimes is weird to me. I was on one, and I love the guy, but his format was weird where we pick a song and we talk about it for an hour that how much we hate it. And I'm like, an hour? I can maybe do that for five minutes. And I was like, oh, I'll just do it anyway. And it turned into, there was a third guy, and he kept making all these jokes about the song relating to rape. I can't even remember the song. It was like a country song or country hip-hop song or whatever. And I was so right. miserable because that seemed like he was trying to perform. I felt like I was on one of those morning radio shows where they have to have certain things. Right. You know, that, that fake laugh and that setup for the jokes. And I was like, this isn't right. This is yes. weird. I remember I, I remember you saying that to me where it was like, you know, this is – don't think of it like you have to perform on a, you know, like a, you know, a game show, a talk show, you know. Right. You know, you just – we're just we're just here having with two friends having a conversation, so that's why I I, I always look at it, you know. What I'm saying so, like you know, I, I always credit you with uh, you know giving me that insight and how to you know going into this field of podcasting. Well, I'm glad it worked for you. And while we're talking about that, what is your podcast? Oh, of course, um, the, my podcast grows on the bridge, uh, Star Trek podcast. Uh, we've gone on a little hiatus because you know I've had a you know uh, personal family issue that I've been taking care of, so we've gone on a little hiatus, you know. But uh, we're 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 gonna start recording soon, you know. What I'm saying we got a, a bunch of cool topics to talk about. Um, and, uh, Let's say this though: you took a hiatus, but you were very on the nose of getting episodes out. Usually when people are starting, yeah, yeah, yeah. it takes a while to get to even 10 episodes. And you hit the ground running. So I would consider that maybe your season one. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I, you know, um, I, I, I had a plan for, uh, you know, a number of episodes I was going to do. So I just want to finish that out before we go on, like, you know, a season, uh, a, a thorough season hiatus. But, um, yeah, um, uh, we'll get back to it, you know, soon. Uh, soon enough, uh, you know, have just like I'm, I'm really excited for like you know all the other topics I have planned out. Yeah, I and mean, what's know, the main core of the and, show for anybody start... listening? Right. Oh, uh, well, the, the the main the, the main thing about the show is we talk about all things Star Trek and Star Trek inspired. Like, being that this is the first season, I'm I'm keeping it. We're talking about first season Star Trek shows. Like you know, we've talked about first season of Star Trek Voyager, the original series, The Next Generation, uh, you know, so we're, we're keeping it, like, you know, in that kind of, like, spectrum, like, you know, as a kind of way, like, you know, being this is our first season, we're only talking about first season episodes and stuff. Yeah. But, then, uh, then, next, then, season, have, ne- next season... What are you going to do between the okay. gap? Where, where the, the original series ended in 69, and you have the animated series, yes. but... You know, and then the first movie, but there's two big gaps there. Do you discuss the shows that kind of filled that sci-fi need during that time? No, uh, we're we're saving that for a second season. Like second season, I I have a lot of things planned out where we discuss, um, like not just Star Trek, but like you know where we really get into like 
the shows that came out of Star Trek, you know. Um, like, I want to get into a lot of, uh, like, Battlestar Galactica and Space 1999. Like, you know, all, all those, you know, those sci-fi shows that's kind of like, you know, they, 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 especially Space 1999, because I know that the second season was from one of the, the writers and producers of Star Trek, you know, and that controversial second season, you know. Where uh, it got it, it got uh, the uh, the showrunner of that season booed off stage at one convention. Wow. I heard. <laughs> yeah, like you know, he showed up and he was trying to explain himself, and everybody was like, "Boo! Get the fuck out of there!" <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like that that's my main mission. Like you know, and I also want to get into a lot of uh, you know the movies. You know, saying like we we last episode we discussed Star Trek Beyond. We kind of little cheated a bit, you know. Uh, that was that was uh, my co-host pick, Mac. That was his pick. He wanted to discuss Star Trek Beyond because he loves Star Trek Beyond. So um, we're we're going to go into more of the movies and stuff, like you know, the, the film series, which is which was inspired by you because uh, I remember you did uh, you discussed the Star Trek movies, and uh, I was like, I want to join, and he was like, Oh, I'm sorry, we already did the episode. I'm like fuck. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. I missed the boat, but uh, that's how the series was born. Because I was like, oh, I wanted to discuss Star Trek. Like, uh, maybe I was thinking about it. And, and, you know, uh, my co-host was who's been my best friend for for thirty years now, since we were both six years old. We're both thirty six now. Um, he was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And I was like, all right, fuck it, let's do it. You and me. And that's how the show was born. Uh, with me and him just talking about our love for Star Trek, and uh, yeah, that's my plan. You know, like uh, we're we're gonna finish out the season talking about first season episodes of Star Trek shows, but then we're going to get into uh, more heavier stuff. You know, start. You know, like I want to do the second season about Star Trek. You know, in comparison to Star Wars, and then Battlestar Galactica, and you know, Stargate SG One. You know, oh. all these kind of shows. You know, things. It, you know, these sci-fi shows that kind of came out in the wake of, you know, Star Trek, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, look for that, you know, we'll, we'll get to it, and it's, it's, you know, hopefully people enjoy it, it'll be fun. The, um, the other thing that you do, are you still writing your Cinema Drunkie? Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I've been neglecting my blog, but, um, I've been uh, getting back into writing, like I said, like I had a family issue that I took care of, so I, I really dropped everything, but I've been slowly getting back into, um, you know, writing a lot of reviews and stuff. I just had two that came out today, like, back to back. Yeah, one for actionflix.com and one for um, uh, my main site, the ultimateactionmovies.com. Uh, uh, that's the one I start with. Um, uh, the, on Action Flix, I wrote about the, the final fight from Guyver 2 Dark Hero uh, on UltimateActionMovies.com. Uh, Ultimate I wrote about the Hong Kong action movie called The Brink. So, uh, like, yeah, I've just been getting back into it, uh, you know, slowly but surely, you know. And uh, I, I really got to update my blog because I've been neglecting it so long. My poor blog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people will be okay with it. But uh, thank yeah, you for yeah. this episode. Keep uh, staying strong. I know. Uh, I I see the cases are kind of dropping in New York, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they they slowly but surely opening up. You know, um, 
yeah, the, the cases have dropped considerably. So, like, you know, we've, we've gone, we're going through phases of, of reopening. I think we're on going into phase three. Yeah. So, yeah, protesting over what, the mask what, what, because we have a bunch of dumb shit rednecks here protesting the mask. Oh, God. It's like, a, it's you a know, fucking I mask. Walking, yeah, just, just wear a fucking mask, man. Like, you know, like, I, uh, last Thursday, um, I, uh, it was the first time I was out all day and I had to, you know, I had to, you know, take care of, like I said, some family issues, so I was walking back and forth, and I had the mask on, and it was just like, you know what I'm saying, you know, because I'm a heavyset guy, so it's hard for me to believe in that kind of shit, but it's like, look, there's a mild inconvenience, I'll wear the fucking mask, even though it's like, you know, it's become hard for me to breathe, I wear the fucking mask, because, you know, I'm concerned, you know, about, you know, me and my fellow man, you know, and it's like, if I can do that, you know, I'm suffering in this shit, but if I can do that, you can fucking do that. So I don't want to fucking hear this shit about, I don't want to wear the mask. Just wear it. Yeah. There's wear a, it. We, we have a team member, and I don't understand why she still does this, but she loves to work. She loves it. She's in her 80s. She wears a mask for six to eight hours a shift. You can wear a mask for 15 minutes, young man. <laughs> you in yes. your 20s, your buff guy who says you have medical issues, you're full of shit. I can look at you. You look yeah. pretty tough. <laughs> Yeah, like, uh, I remember I discussed this last night, too, about the Dean Kane. Oh, my God. Like, oh, yeah, like, oh, 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh, fuck you, Dean Kane. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some Superman. Yeah, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, we're the worst Superman anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> well... I think we've kind of hit the end of this before we go off into an angry rant. But uh, thank you very much for this episode. (laughs) We we are on uh, Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. You'll find all our podcasts there. And uh, I guess have a good night. Have a good night, everybody. And be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! Come on, dudes!